This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend here, your coach, your guide on this side, top of the morning to you. It's Thursday morning. I'm, I'm sorry, Matt. Another day. I was a little late getting into the studio this morning. So was I. Where were you? There's a new Star Wars trailer. Oh, it was just brother. released an hour ago. I had to watch it three or four times. You are addicted. <clears throat> You need a life like me. This one's cool. It's the story of how they got the the plans for the first Death Star, mm-hmm. and 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 what led up to the decisions and all the different mm. plans that came together so they could take out the the first Death Star, which we saw in the what Star Wars? What? 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 This is um, boring. Watch the trailer. It's You'll not notice boring. that historically we never start the monologue with a Death Star discussion. I know. I'm just. I was late. I wanted to apologize. It's kind of rude. <laughs> Didn't even know you weren't here. Yeah. Because I just was late too. But I had nothing to do with the Death Star. I'm trying to figure out why Bernie Sanders is saying Hillary is not qualified because she's because, saying he's not. Yeah, that's why. Okay. It's a well. Uh, well, fine. You're not qualified. No, you're not qualified. You're, you're yeah. Your mother's not qualified. <laughs> Your is, mother. <laughs> what is my, my mother's dad? <laughs> my mother has nothing to do with this. That is so wrong. It's a uh, it's a battle of this is turning crazy a little bit. I was reading in the Huffington Post. Somebody, one of the, I'm trying to find it here, mentioned that it's possible if Bernie's not qualified, mm. and that is that the. the the direction she takes. And one of the reasons is she's not even sure he's a Democrat. Now, what, he's, so, he's qualified in the sense that <clears throat> there are certain qualifications laid out right. to be president. So she's not talking about any of those. No. We're not talking citizenship. He obviously has the age thing taken care he's of. He's got that. There's experience. He's been a senator for how long? A million years. 20. Right. Or a Congress. Is he a Senate Congress? He had hair yeah. when he started. Yeah. He doesn't now. That can kind of illustrate. Um so she's looking at it as, is he really a Democrat? Should he be running for this office through this party? But see, this is where you don't want to take it. No. Because it's the same. All of a sudden now they're saying, even on Huffington Post, they're starting to say, don't make him mad. Like, or, don't or question his, his Democrat, Democratic credentials because he could run an independent run. Yeah. Easily. And cause more problems by not getting out of the so race. So what would happen if you had the Dems and the Republicans having independent candidates? Holy cow. Then somebody in the Green Party is going to take this thing. Ooh. I don't even know who's running in the Green Party. Me either. But wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah. Because he's he could just as easily run an independent campaign. He's already doing that. And there's been hints that if there's shenanigans at but the Republican convention. You're play, she's playing that you're not even a Democrat card. Right. Oh, mercy. This is going to get crazy. And then she'll get indicted. And then Bernie will we, we go just independent. Saw, we just and saw that Biden there, will come in. We, we saw quotes from uh, FBI sources saying that there is no chance of an indictment. 
Oh, I don't believe They that. just want to investigate. Yeah, that's what they're saying right now. <laughs> they have to say that. Isn't this crazy? This is this is the weirdest election ever. This it, is crazy. It's the perfect storm. This is the perfect storm. It will get me for the first time in years to actually watch the Republican and the Democratic convention and not just ignore the fact that they exist. Yeah, because it's going to be a brawl. Because before it's just a coronation, right? You know who's going to be the candidate. They and they have a big, big pomp and circumstance thing and yeah. people show up and here we go. Here's our candidate. And it's like, OK, fine. I don't need all that. No. But this is real. This this will be, uh, you know, trying to figure it out. You know, the the process apparently didn't work right in the sense of finding the candidate. Now we have to figure it out as we all get together. And this is that's going to be weird because like the rule making and the rules changing and because both both parties you could just make up the rules while you're there. Well, and I had never ever thought that it could happen on the Democratic side, except honestly, he's better geared and ready to go independent than anyone for Bernie. Yeah, yeah. he's got his own source of money. He's got a huge following, and it seems to be trending well. Likewise, Trump. Trump. Same way. It. But see, Trump has always kind of teased that idea, and he has his own source of money himself <laughs> now the only thing more fun than watching all of this and then or fearful actually because i'm worried now what's going to happen to our world um no is, it's fun leave it at fun. but more fun is watching ted cruz just like trying to enter a building in new york where everyone's yelling at him giving just, him that good old new york welcome did you see the protester uh-huh is that the one that in the, re- in the restaurant i don't think you use vulgarity Somebody like basically welcome to New York. No, no, no. This was in – he was having an event. Uh-huh. Oh, no. He was in a restaurant. Yeah. He had – what was it? There was some, It was like 70 pastors, preachers, re, you know, religious leaders, conservative religious leaders in New York, 70 of them, and then 12 other people. Yeah. So, so the he, leaders and then the other people. He had a campaign event and essentially 12 people showed up. <laughs> but he went to the Bronx. Yeah, well, that's... Which really isn't his demographic. That's not his, yeah. Not a strength. Mm-mm. One of the 12 ended up being a protester. Oh, so there's really only 11. Yeah, well, two. Okay. So there's 10. Yeah, down to 10. <laughs> and he just he just started saying, why are you here? He goes, you're against basically everything this neighborhood is built on. He goes, the Bronx has, we have immigrants, we have, you know, people who uh, who are struggling in this, this recession, who need help, who yeah. need assistance, and you're simply the not – you're not the candidate for us is what he was saying. He said it in a, a better way, I guess. Interesting. But, and, and he just – but, and then they escorted him out. He didn't swear. He didn't do oh, – he just was calm, but he, but he was really there in protest. He did call Cruz a bigot. Okay, yeah. And so that was probably the most harshest thing he said. But it was, it was good because a lot of these protesters, when they come in, they start swearing. They start saying things right. that can't be aired. Well, this isn't a Trump rally. No, but they can't be aired. And so they just get beeped or else yeah. they don't get covered. And now if you say, you say something forceful That's great. and then it gets covered. Now, Cruz remembers in trouble because he made a comment back at a debate many moons ago about, we all know, New York values. January 14th about. Wow, was it that far back? Yeah, I had to go back and find it. So uh, th- this, is, this, is, this is a little compilation of Cruz's, um, Cruz's quote about New York values and then the Donster's reply. You know, I think most people know exactly what New York values are, that the values in New York City are socially liberal or pro-abortion or pro-gay marriage, focused around money and the media. And, and I guess I can, can frame it another way. 
Not a lot of conservatives come out of Manhattan. I'm just saying. New York is a great place. It's got great people. It's got loving people, wonderful people. When the World Trade Center came down, I saw something that no place on earth could have handled more beautifully. And everybody in the world watched and everybody in the world loved New York and loved New Yorkers. And I have to tell you, that was a very insulting statement that Ted made. And he just kind of stood there and took it in the debate. Well, he took it. Then he he started clapping when everyone else did. Yeah. Ted Cruz did because... You got you got to like that. Their values. He just brought nine eleven back into it, so Ted Cruz can't be seen not applauding after that in support of what was said. And this is why this is why very awkward. This is a really hard couple weeks for Cruz because now Cruz is kind of trying to adjust the message a little bit and calling it democratic New York values. Let's let's listen to that. Let's see how he spun this one here in the state of New York. You know, when I talked about New York values, it was interesting. Just a minute ago, I was meeting with a significant number of Hispanic pastors, of African-American pastors here in the Bronx. And, and one of those pastors, Senator Ruben Diaz, who was a Democratic state senator who hosted the gathering, Senator Diaz said, I know exactly what you mean by New York values. We fight them every day in our community. We fight them because it's the values of the liberal Democratic politicians that have been hammering the people of New York for a long time. Okay, so it's the liberal democratic values, not the values of New Yorkers in general. But he didn't say that. Yeah. He, well, he just said it, but he said it like, well, what's five months, four months too late. Yeah. And so that's the now not, that he's in New York. It's not going to help. <laughs> he was in South Carolina at the time. He's trying to win South Carolina. So saying New York values mm-hmm. resonates with that voting. Well, group. and with the rest of the country, because everyone in the country thinks they know what those that meant. Right. New York. There was guys. a Saturday night uh, Saturday night live clip where uh, they had the guy playing Cruz and all he was doing was referencing Seinfeld. Oh, really? He goes, "Everyone just celebrates Festivus." And and everyone he just all these different references to different things like from Seinfeld. Seinfeld episodes. And so the moderators are like, "Are you just quoting Seinfeld? Is that your only relationship <laughs> with New York? Is, Is your world show? view from Seinfeld?" <laughs> he goes, "Come on. Everyone knows." <laughs> Oh, that's hard. See, that's what's so weird about this is because they all have a worldview, right? And it might just be from Seinfeld. Like, where does Trump get his worldview about NATO? And, I mean, where does he actually get his data? Because he always talks yeah. about how he gets it from TV. Mm-hmm. I, watch, what he, I watch the I watch all kinds. Everything I know is from the internet, remember? He said that. <laughs> we are in so much trouble. No, we're fine. We're in trouble in a good way. Hey, so here's the question. Is the American dream dead? Is it alive or is it dead? Do you feel like you could go get a house? Do you feel like you have a, a strong enough job? Do you feel like you're going to be able to retire at a, at a healthy age, still have a life? Because if, if not, then it might be dead, folks. And so we, we have a wonderful guest coming up. Michelle Dickerson will be joining us. She wrote an article uh, titled, Is the American Dream Dead? It's a wonderful um, – I think discussion, and she's been doing so much research on a book that's coming out, and we we finally we got her on the phone, and she's going to walk us through her view of the American dream and and what the kind of middle America is feeling when it comes to the American dream. For many in lower income areas, the American dream is probably already dead to them. 
They don't feel like they could get a home. They have to rent. Many uh, millennials are struggling even creating a job and getting out there and uh, making ends meet. Many people have to have three or four jobs just to make ends meet. We saw in California they're raising the minimum wage um, to $15 an hour simply, I guess, to recapture the opportunity of an American dream. I'm not sure. That might be a a day late and a dollar short. But – We'll be talking with Michelle Dickerson in just a few minutes about the American dream. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the world? Thanks, Matt. There are more than 1.4 million people in the Bronx, but Ted Cruz couldn't muster 100 of them at a campaign event. Uh, with Senator State or State Senator Ruben Diaz Sr., a conservative Christian minister, Cruz visited the a Chinese Dominican restaurant where Diaz said that the presidential candidate could listen to the social, economic, and spiritual spiritual needs of our community while dining with other clergymen on the eateries fr- uh, fried rice and all that kind of stuff. Aside from about seventy ministers affiliated with Diaz, only a dozen voters turned out. Two of them were tossed out after screaming protests about the Texas senator's hardline stance on immigration. So that was something that, mm. that Donald Trump brought up later at a uh, rally. He goes, he couldn't even get 100 people, and he's got yeah. you know he's got several thousand. Well, it's the Bronx, Trump campaign. and it's hard. It was a yeah, he it's was hard. He wasn't there to bring in a bunch of voters. He was trying to talk to some religious leaders, those pastors, yeah, and get those pastors to uh, be on his side. A Newtown middle school teacher was arrested Wednesday for allegedly bringing a firearm into the, into a school. Eighth grade science teacher Jason Adams was charged with possession of a weapon on school grounds after police responded to a call that an employee was seen carrying a gun. This matters. Mm. This matter is very serious and troubling both to the Newtown Public School System and the Newtown Police Department. They took immediate steps to address the matter. The school district said in a statement, "This, of course, after Sandy Hook, tensions are high in that yeah. area." The- Guns are not a, a friendly sight. Right. The U.S. United States government plans to institute new rules requiring banks to identify the owners behind shell companies for the first time ever. The rule comes as a response to the Panama Papers leak of documents naming international leaders as having ties to offshore tax shelters for companies. Under previous regulations, uh, banks with American branches in the U.S. were required to know who opens stateside accounts. And many have exploited the loophole, whereas customers set up accounts using shell companies overseas. Hmm. That's gonna. We're gonna find out more about that. I think. Yeah, there's no Americans listed, and they're saying the reason is because it's so easy just to do it in the in the in the in here in, in the, the United, United States. States. You go to Nevada and Delaware, and you can kind of do the same thing you can do in Panama. Interesting. So Delaware is like Panama. Yeah, except you know. In Delaware. And the weather's not great. If you want to buy an AK-47, I know that's something that's yeah. on your wish list. I was just or, looking at one. Or an anti-tank rocket launcher, grenades, oh, mobile anti-aircraft missiles, and you live in Libya, Iraq, or Syria, or mm-hmm. other areas with heavy Islamic state presence, look no further than Facebook. Oh, are you kidding? This according to the New York Times, citing its own research in a recent study by the Armament Research Services, a private consultancy. Across the Middle East, Facebook has been hosting sprawling online arms bazaars in private and secret groups, says uh, the New York Times. And because Facebook has barred the private sale of weapons on its site since January, the social media giant shut down six of the seven groups the newspaper brought to its attention. It's not clear how extensive arms trafficking on the site has been, but the rate of new posts has been unmistakably brisk, with many groups offering several new weapons a day. The Times reports with uh, between what 6,000 trades across the region, including up to 300 arms sale posts a month hmm. from Libya alone. Are you... <laughs> Facebook, you know, where grandma you, you posts her pictures. I got a tank for you. Uh, low miles on my tank. That's crazy. What's happening to this world? Anyway, whatever happens, we're going to be here. 
We got nowhere to go. So short of just complete annihilation, listen to the Matt Townsend show. I know I'll be here. Can't speak for Ben. Ben will be sleeping in that day. Yeah, I'm hightailing it out of here. Ben's got to get on his bike and get riding to avoid the apocalypse. Hey, we're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, Michelle Dickerson will be joining us from Texas Law School. Uh, She has written an article um, basically questioning, is the American dream dead? Well, according to her research, and for many people in the country, it is. It's, it's It's dead. And uh, she's going to be talking about the three metrics she uses to uh, make such a conclusion. Stick with us, folks. Interesting discussion coming up. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the American dream has been the symbol of hope in our nation for over 50 years. However, it seems that in the last few years, this dream has become increasingly more difficult to obtain. In fact, many believe it's impossible and that the American dream is actually dead. Our guest today, Michelle Dickerson, is professor of law at the University of Texas at Austin and recently wrote an article titled, Is the American Dream Dead?, where she explores the downward spiral of three basic tenets of the American dream, owning a home, having stable employment, and retiring debt-free and financially secure. And uh, we're honored to have her here uh, joining us. Michelle Dickerson, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. You bet. I um, I was intrigued by the article, and it's funny because it, it always depends, I guess, on who you're talking to. When I talk to an economist, they they don't always seem to think the middle class is struggling as much, except as a member of the middle class, I feel like we're struggling a lot. So talk to me about your article, Is the American Dream? In your eyes, Michelle, is it is the American Dream dead? Well, I think it's, it's dead for some people and not for others, on life support for some hmm. and not for others. But one of the interesting comments that, you, that actually you just made is sort of the whole notion of the middle class, because... I would say 90% of all Americans probably would say they're in the middle class, mm-hmm. which we know can't be true. Right, exactly. So, you know, the economists may be right, depending on how they're defining the middle class. That's true. That's true. And I guess that's part of it, because it seems like anybody um, that is uh, financially struggling, anybody, I, I mean, and there's so many everywhere from, we, we're on a college campus, and so we see a student after student that are graduating and they can't find a job or they're going to have to have multiple jobs. So from just the less educated, the undereducated, from the underemployed, from um, minority communities that, that haven't had necessarily the same opportunities, it's, it's got to seem hopeless. Well, and the, the job piece has dramatically changed over the last 30 years, because I'm also, um, you know, work at, at, at University of Texas. Yeah. And there is a concern with the number of our students who are graduating and facing two things that really weren't that big of a, of a problem. They weren't a crisis 30 years ago. First is a really dramatically different labor market. And second, mounds of student loan debt. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, 30 years, people that, uh, you know, sort of went into the workforce, what I call the old economy, you go in the workforce in the 
seventies, nineteen eighties. You may not get your dream job to start out with, but what you could reasonably expect you would get is a full time forty hour a week job that probably paid you some kind of benefit. Mm. That's just not the reality that young people, the millennials, Gen Y, that they're facing when they're going out into the market right now. And and they're carrying that debt load, aren't they? So they have a huge debt load, I mean, in regards to their income, and they can't go necessarily get a 40-hour-a-week uh, job. Exactly. They, they might need two or three jobs. Exactly. I mean, this, this sort of gig economy that we're in now where it, be, it it has become normal for people to have to sort of piece together two or three jobs to come up with what, you know, 30 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, we would have called a reasonable income. Uh, and I'm not picking on, you know, Uber or Lyft, but that sort of symbolizes what's going on with a lot of our uh, people that are young folks that are trying to find jobs. You have to drive a car at night and mm. do something, a couple of different jobs during the day in order to come up with enough money just to get by. Yeah. And that might be that I guess that could be someone with an education or without with a college degree or not. It doesn't it doesn't give you that ticket, like you said. To uh, to go get the job. Um, exactly. What what now, this idea of the American dream though is? It, it was the first time I've ever heard who who coined it. It was James Truslow Adams yeah. in eighty five years ago. He coined the term. Yeah, and it wasn't. I don't think it meant the same thing eighty five years ago. Obviously, as, right. it, as it means now. But there has always been this notion that we would have some form of upward mobility. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you, if whether you're an immigrant coming to the country, or you know you're the um, you're the you're a child, right? If you work hard, play by the rules, that you basically will get to the point where you have some sort of stability and security. You may not be rich, but that you will at least have a comfortable life. I think that was the notion of the American dream, you know, 85 years ago. And I think most people are still aspiring for that. It's just really hard. Oh, yeah. And it's – I guess that you're right. The dream was that if you you could get a house and you could eventually pay it off and eventually you could have a retirement and you could retire and maybe at 70 be done or 60 – actually back right. in the day, 60 be done. And mm-hmm. it's just – I guess that's part of the dream too that's lost. Yeah. And, you know, we, we saw a lot of the sort of the ugly side of people trying to achieve the American dream of homeownership during the um, housing boom, and which, of course, then followed by the housing crash, mm. where people who couldn't afford to be homeowners, but they're thinking, I work full time, I've got a job, I should be able to buy a house, but I can't. And then we came up, you know, the banks came up with all of those crazy mortgages, and people got into the homes only to soon fall out of the homes because right. of a foreclosure. But it was this sort of yearning to own my own home. Um, and, you know, we can criticize some of the homes that people were buying during that period. Mm-hmm. They were too big. The mini mansions or whatever, yeah. Exactly, right. But it, it was, that wasn't all that was going on. It, it wasn't just that everybody that was buying a home was trying to live beyond their means. Many people just wanted to own their own home, 
which really has been a sort of a stable component, a consistent component of what we think it means to be middle class mm. in this country. Yeah. No, that was – it's kind of life, liberty, a pursuit of happiness, and a home. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, the, the, the picket fence has always been a part of – I've got my own home in the That's backyard true, huh? and the picket fence. And a car. You got to have a car exactly. if you're not in New York. It's um, but the housing boom. I guess that is one of the big signs too that it the housing prices just keep going up and up and up relative to incomes that are more stagnant. And that is something I guess squeezing people out of the dream. Well, and it's doing more than just squeezing people out of the dream of being a homeowner. It is squeezing people out of the dream of having stable and secure, affordable housing. Because in most, certainly in the larger U.S. cities, and we're seeing it certainly in my city of Austin, Texas, it's really difficult for middle-income families to even find affordable rental housing. Mm. So we're beyond the problem of can I find a home I can afford to buy. Now the issue is can I find anything that I can afford to call my dwelling place. And yeah. that's another big change. The, the, it's a rental mentality, right? I mean, it's a rental world. Now people exactly. are more inclined to just rent, except now you're saying we can't even necessarily afford to rent. That's right. I mean, a, a lot of major cities are looking at their middle class disappearing because they can't afford to live in the city. And, of course, that then creates the problem of the the transportation. So now you've got an hour-and-a-half commute to try to get to your job because you can't even afford to live in the city Mm. where you work. And we're talking about, you know, school teachers who can't afford to live near the schools they teach in. So then you have to commute an hour-and-a-half to get to your school. And what kind of life is that? Exactly. And, And plus... Well, I mean, gas prices have gone down now, but Mm -hmm. that was becoming catastrophic when gas prices were so high. So, I mean, really, it's it's the fundamental things that we thought it meant to sort of strive for the American dream. Home ownership is becoming challenging. Retirement is becoming really challenging. And it's just making people really scared and angry. Yeah. In fact, I guess that seems like thus the movement, the Bernie Sanders movement, the Donald Trump movement, throw the bums out. Right. Yeah. It's a, they've had, you know, sort of the and it's really interesting because you have uh, sort of the the far left and right of the political spectrum who seem to be feeling the same level of anxiety. Mm-hmm. We're we're scared. We're upset. We feel our country has let us down, and we feel our political leaders have let us down. So let's go for something that, in any other election cycle, I don't think you would have seen. No, I think you're right, and it's. It seems like. Uh, tell me if this is on or off. I think you even mentioned it in your article that many of the uh, kind of middle income white middle-aged men, 45 to 56 or so, are feeling the the biggest pain, I guess, uneducated white men at that age. Um, and they're mad at Obama. I mean, one of the things I hear a lot about is Obama. It's, it's the health care uh, initiative that now made it so that you can't get a job with more than 30 hours because you'll be considered like full-time or whatever. So everyone's moved. So now you're getting a 28-hour a week job um, without benefits, which you used to be able to, you know, have a forty-hour a week job or thirty-eight-hour a week job without benefits. And, and I think 
that's that's an easy scapegoat, and that'll work. You know, that'll yeah. work as well as any other. But the simple reality is the the labor market has been shifting for thirty or forty years, mm. and so one of the it, it's a bipartisan problem. So to the extent that people want to be mad at the current. Um, president who is a Democrat, you also have to be mad at the last president who was a Democrat right. and at the Republican. And the Republican, president. right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so if, if you're going to be angry, you've got a lot of uh, presidential administrations mm-hmm. to be angry at because this didn't just happen in eight or 10 or even 15 years. Well, this is why everybody is now talking about the trade deals, right? And because the shifting of the the marketplace and the shifting of certain jobs out of the country and certain jobs to other parts of the country. And even now, the the labor unions themselves aren't as allied to maybe the Democratic Party as historically they would have been, even though they probably are. But um, it's it's a shift going on, huh? This isn't a new thing. It's just just come to a head, it seems like. And... One of the other interesting things, you know, you mentioned the, the the labor movement. One of the things that's happened, again, sort of the shift in 30, 40 years, is a uh, diminished um, uh, power or influence of labor unions. Mm. And so a lot of things that have happened to workers perhaps wouldn't have happened in the 60s or 70s when labor unions were much stronger. But no, this didn't just happen overnight. It's been a series of things that have happened um, in the United States that's made people very anxious, very concerned about whether they'll ever be able to have a middle-class lifestyle. This is – I think this is in, an important discussion um, because we – I think a lot of people feel it and I really do believe this is what we're seeing at the – just in some of this crazy election chaos. Uh, we're speaking again with Michelle Dickerson. She is a professor of law at uh, University of Texas in Austin. Wrote a wonderful article, Is the American Dream Dead? She's been researching this uh, deeply in an effort to write a book. We'll talk. Uh, we'll take a break, come back, talk to her about her uh, upcoming book, but also want to talk about um, what, what, is the, what does the future look like? What, uh, what can we do? Uh, where should we be looking for some, some, I guess, some reprieve, some break? Stick with us, folks. Interesting stuff. Learning about the middle class, how to lead your life, hopefully through this chaotic time. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side, doing what we can to give you the information you need to live a healthier, happier life. Uh, today we're talking about the American dream and um, is it dead? Or And I guess it, what we're coming up with is it depends who you are. It depends where you are. But for many people in this country, folks, it's dead. It feels like they don't have a shot Um, They've got an education, perhaps, maybe middle-class America, but they've got student loans that they can't afford. There's not a job for 40 hours of work. Their job is so far from their workplace, they have to commute, which doesn't create a problem when gas prices are low. But when gas prices go up, it might just simply push them out. Who better to help us with this than the person that wrote the article, Is the American Dream Dead?, 
in uh, the the conversation.com. Her name is Michelle Dickerson. She's a law professor at uh, uh, the University of Texas at Austin and um, is coming out with a, a book that's uh, soon, I guess, soon to be released. Michelle, welcome to the show again. Thanks. Talk about your book. What book are you writing that uh, the research led to this article? Well, I, I would love to say it's soon to be released. Oh, yeah. Somewhat earlier stage than that, but it's, it's actually the book is going to be about what I call the disappearing middle class. Mm. And the focus of the book will look at both low wages and high debt and how those two things have combined to destroy the American dream. And didn't they get um, into debt for the dream, right? I'm going to go get educated, and then it ended up biting them. Yeah, and... And one of the other things that, that I found in, in doing the research for the book is because I kept focusing on sort of the income inequality and wealth inequality, and that is a huge issue. But the more I focused on the income part, I kept seeing that we have to look at the other side of the ledger sheet because household debts are going up. Hmm. And so what has happened with a lot of people is they couldn't find the income. Income was stagnant, and so they were using debt to try to finance their middle-class life. And not enough income and too much debt is a recipe for disaster. Oh, yeah. And I guess also perpetuated the rich getting richer because they were making money on your debt. Exactly, exactly. And again, you know, we saw it, I probably the worst example during the housing crash, but we're also seeing now, for example, uh, a phenomena with the middle class doing things like using pawn shops. So, you know, historically, that was for, you know, the working class yeah. or the very poor. But you are na- we are now seeing an increased use of pawn shops, payday loans, check cashers, with folks who are solidly in the middle class. And that's just not something we saw 30 years ago. Mm. Isn't this... It's it is it's it's um it's kind of it's turned upside down and and now with California making the fifteen dollar minimum um uh for what's a fifteen dollar minimum in, minimum minimum wage, wage. Yeah. um mm-hmm. I mean but but again that is the working class that that they have always seemingly been struggling but now you're saying it's eking up into the to the middle class I mean they're pulling right. into into the pawn shop in their nice vehicle to go yeah. pawn. Their wife's tennis bracelet, mm-hmm. and or to and to go pawn. And there was a uh, pawn shop that opened up in the city of Austin about seven years ago. And because I either have written about debt or talked about debt, and I I used to teach bankruptcy at the University of Texas, but I saw the pawn shop in a location that was just shocking. It's near um, a lake in the city of Austin, where it's a hike and bike lake, and. Hmm. Folks that live in Austin, it's quite quite a prominent area. And I thought, why in the world would that pawn shop be there? And then I started doing research on it, and I realized because their customers aren't too far from there. But yet, it was striking when it first appeared to imagine that pawn shops have almost now gone mainstream. Yeah, wow! It'll be on. It, yeah, middle class. Yeah, right there in the in the middle class neighborhoods, uh, right next to the other, you know, the Coles and exactly. the other. That's right. Mm-hmm. Shopping, um, man. What about uh, so housing's a big uh, impact on it. The downward mobility, the inability to maybe get a job uh, a, 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 with a strong wage, and then retirement insecurity. So that's more the baby boomers 
are now finding that they're unable to retire and they're going to have right. to work longer. Um, what? Because again, I guess that's the middle class as well. Exactly. And, and again, you know, everyone wants to sort of focus on what's happening now, and I keep saying, but we need to look at what's been happening yeah. for the last 30 or 40 years. So I use my parents as an example, actually, in, in, in the book, that you, in the 1960s, 1970s, if you worked in the, for a public sector employer, and for many of the larger private sector employers, you had this thing called a pension that your employer provided for you. Uh, the historical or the traditional pensions were called defined benefit plans. You worked for that employer for 30 or 40 years, and when you retired, you got a check every month. My parents still get their monthly pension. Mm. That, And the big difference now is for late boomers um, and also for all other generations, if we have a pension, it's because we either totally fund it or we mostly fund it. Mm. So the new form, the 401ks, the defined contribution plans, we only get back what we put into the plan. And again, that worked fine until the housing market Mm -hmm. crashed. And suddenly people who thought they could retire couldn't retire. People who thought they were going to be able to help their children go to college couldn't do that. And so they're still working, trying to recoup the money they lost in the market, whereas older boomers, their pension checks just keep coming month after month Mm. after month. That is so true. And, I mean, it really is, like you're saying, this has been going on 30 to 40 years, and and it's just a decision here and a decision there, right? I mean, these are just subtle little decisions that are now compounding and and impacting us today. If it took 30 to 40 years to get where we are today – what on earth is the future going to look like? Well, if we don't change, if we don't make a decision that we want to save the middle class in America, then we're going to end up almost in back sort of the Gilded Age, where we have the very, very rich and everybody else. Hmm. I don't think that's the society that we want in America. So we're going to have to make some really bold choices and decisions to prevent us from going back to a period of of time where I don't think anyone looks back to that period and say, oh, that was wonderful for most of America. For the top 1% or 2%, maybe it was great, not for the rest of us. And and it looks like, I mean, we also are, you know, right in the middle of a presidential election, and it's so it might be time to make one of these changes, except, you you know, so who do you – Who's the change maker? Who's the where's the who's going to upset the apple cart enough to make it happen? And I guess that is why we probably need to at least truly evaluate our candidates and and evaluate them based on this. Who's most likely to save the middle class? Who's who's talking about it? And I guess can a politician do anything anyway? Well, one politician might not be able to, but I think that One of the things that we, and this is just a prediction, so I may be wrong, but I think one of the things we may see from the members of uh, Congress, because many of them are horrified by what we're seeing in the election cycle this year, I'm hopeful that what they are seeing is you have a lot of constituents. We have a lot of people in America that are angry. So either you try to do something to fix the problems that have been just sort of rolling along and getting bigger and bigger as we're rolling downhill, 
or they may come after you and vote you out as well. Hmm. No, I like that. And and like and, and maybe that's the key is keep a national discussion going on about middle class that right. and and this pressure because you can almost see, you know, the the election ends and all of this anger, I guess, no longer can be vented, but it doesn't go away. And I I think that this anger is not going away yeah. because every um, the, the the members of the House and the, well, not as frequently for the members of the, for for our senators, but they're going to have to keep coming up for reelection. And I think the people that are angry now are going to be angry in two years mm-hmm. and four years and six years until they see something from our elected officials, both on the federal and on the state level, mm-hmm. that says we hear you. We know you're in pain, and we're going to try to do something about it. But it can't be, you know, as you mentioned, this has been going along for 30 years. We can't make a tweak here and a tweak there right. to solve the problem. And what do you tell your students? Because um, you got to be kind of hopeless. I mean, I can imagine a law student at UT that's sitting there in debt, I don't know, 50 grand and 80 grand or whatever the numbers are, and their job won't even – Start at thirty, forty thousand a year, maybe some of them. And what do you tell them to help them not lose hope? Well, actually, I'll, I won't use the law students as an example, only because I've taught a freshman seminar called "Good Debt, Bad mm, Debt, Ugly Debt." Yeah, uh, for the last three years, and those are the students that I've really had these conversations with. Many of them are incredibly hopeful because they're freshmen and they've never had jobs and they most of them haven't had bills. And I try to explain to them that, A, you need to start saving right now. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot because they would always say, well, should I open up a, you know, they want to get sophisticated mm-hmm. and open up a, a, a stock, you know, go invest in stock. And my response is, no, even though you're not getting great interest in any bank account right now, Open up a savings account and put the money in. Develop an appetite for saving because you're going to have to depend on yourself a lot for your retirement. You're going to have to depend on yourself a lot for for most financial decisions that you make. So learn now how to make good financial choices. That's I great. tell them to think in terms of the jobs that you take. There may have to be a trade-off where you take a job that you hate. If that's the job that, you know, helps uh, provide a pension, if that's the job that's closer to where you need to be in terms of the, your commute. So I basically tell them you, you may have to make some decisions that are unpleasant and, and don't particularly make you happy to make sure that down the road you're more financially secure. Yeah. No, that's great advice. I mean, because a lot of times I do hear from this younger generation that they want that perfect job and they almost want it right out of the chute. And you're like, mm, exactly. maybe maybe just take a harder job that you, that you don't necessarily love to get you where you need to go. And one of the things that I often have to tell uh, when I talk to law students, because many students have come to law school, they are idealistic, but in a, and I say this in a very positive way, they truly want to go out and do good. Yeah. They want to make life better for people that are downtrodden, that have been mistreated uh, in the criminal justice system. And one of the hardest conversations I have to have with students is when I say, first, you must retire your student loan debt. Hmm. So if you are offered a job by a big law firm that is paying you a lot of money and 
they'll usually get come to that me and they paid. Say, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't like it. That's not what I want to do. It's mm-hmm. not where my heart and where my passion is. And my response is, would you like to retire your debt? Yeah. And if it. you do, then you take that job. You work for the job for two, three, four, whatever number of years you need to, to reduce your debt. And then you can go off and save the world. But until you save yourself, you can't save the world. Great advice. Michelle Dickerson, thank you so much. Uh, And keep up that great work at the University of Texas, Austin. Keep writing as well. We need more of your insight. We're going to take a break, folks. Uh, Come back. Wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting. There is hope, folks. But uh, you also have some choices to make. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Who'd have thunk it, man? The middle class shrinking. And it's just, again, it's just natural things, right? Housing market, jobs shifting, cost of education going up. It's This isn't new stuff. But uh, you got to get ahead, I guess, the best way you can. And... Maybe is it is it getting educated anymore? I mean, is that the key? If you have to spend so much money to get an education, well, statistically, Mr. Townsend, that's the best way to get ahead. Well, yeah, but maybe it's going to take you eight years to get the degree. I don't know. But maybe the bigger thing is the debt load. Watch out for your debt. We used to think it's just great to go get in debt to get educated, but don't just go with that rule. Make it fit and apply to your world. Right and get a degree that's marketable. I guess. I mean, this is this is a difficult time. Or you could just you know hope that money spills from an armored truck like it did in New Jersey. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. An armored truck in New Jersey dropped a bag full of money on a local highway, stopping traffic as bills were strewn about the road. A bag of cash fell out of the armored truck, and passing truck then struck the bag, causing bills to fly into the air. Witness Paul. Money, money, money. Paul Redmond told CBS New York that the bills were spread all across the roadway. And can you imagine, honestly, a bunch of people from New Jersey just all over the highway? (laughs) Take a look. And he said, I saw massive amounts of money flying down the highway. So I walk out a little farther and, you know, next thing you know, just 20 bills all over the place. The driver and several civilians attempted to scoop up the loose bills, but police said that only some returned the money. It's unclear how much money was lost or how the uh, bag fell out of the truck. So that's another way to get ahead. I think Trump had something to do with that. Helping out his people? Yeah, trying to get votes. Trump and Cruz, they're back there. That's in New Jersey. They're not in New Jersey yet. They're probably – just watch for armored trucks, folks. In, Chicago, in uh, New York City. With Trump's face on it. With Trump's face on it. Get your money, yeah? Anyway, folks, tough times. Uh, there's got to be a better way than following armored trucks all day, hoping that a bag of money falls out. We'll take a break. Uh, come back a whole new hour. Next hour, we'll be talking about uh, how to pitch your boss to have a 32-hour work week. It worked for this next guest. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. 
the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy World Health Day. Who? I am the healthiest human ever known to man. Exactly. And we like to celebrate World Health Day, also known as who? Mm. Who? The who? That's a band. Isn't it, it is. It is. It's a different who. Different who. Uh, the who puts together regional, local, international events on this day, the World Health Organization does, to help local governments, you know, get people healthier. Today's the day we're celebrating. Do you think they would support any initiative that would cause for greater mental health? An yeah. increased amount of mental health? I would bet they would. How what about, could they not? What about things that make you emotionally healthy? Say you mean happier? Star Wars? Oh, don't do that. Hey, I didn't say a thing. <laughs> don't bring up Star Wars. I, I, I knew hey, Matt, where this was coming. They released a new trailer. There's a new trailer out, Matt. Oh, my And I'm heavens. very happy about it. You need a life. Why are you so into Star Wars? You're an adult male. Yes, I am. Go earn money for your family. I'm doing that currently. <sighs> and watching a Star Wars trailer every couple minutes. Yeah, you've watched it like five times this morning. Yeah, it's okay. There's there's all sorts of details that can be missed. You have to I make just, sure you watch it. But it just feels like we're missing other things. It's World Health Day. It's also No Housework Day. How ironic is that? That's good because I've got all the housework done for the week. It's Thursday. Today's kind of my day off from housework. Today's trailer day. We watched Star Wars trailers all day long today. <laughs> so they released a new trailer. They did? For Rogue One, which is the, if you, you remember, we've talked about this. Uh-huh. I think you kind of went into like a sleep yeah, coma type thing. Okay, but. So last year they, they had episode seven. Mm-hmm. Is that right? No, episode nine. No, there's one, two, three, right? Then there's yeah, four, five, six. Yeah. So that was episode seven. That mm-hmm. was The Force Awakens. Then this is an off year, so they'll have a different story. This one's about- A different story. This then, one's called Star Wars. It's, a, 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 it's called Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. So the idea is there's this group. They go out and complete a mission, and that's what it's about. So it's not like, see, you're falling asleep. Next, next year will be the continuation after- the Force Awakens, right? So it'll be the next Star Wars movie. Then after that, in the off year, they might do a Han Solo mm. specific spinoff movie. You know what I need? What do you need? I need a flow chart. Will you? <laughs> you kind of. I'll go find you one. They're, will you they're find online. Me a flow yeah, chart yeah. because I. Yeah, let's get a flow chart. Let's it, post it on the show. All Twitter you need to worry feed. about. There's more Star Wars. Well, It'll be out at Christmas, so you can celebrate Christmas. But it's with Star not. Wars. It's not a Star Wars like Star Wars. It's, it's an pre- off year. It's actually a prequel oh. to Star Wars: A New Hope, which was yeah flowchart. Right. Need a flow see, chart. see, there you go. So if I, if I had a if I had, if I had a mind map for this, sorry for digressing there. It's World Health Day. I'm just saying, do something that makes you happy. Well, I'd like to. Okay. But you keep bringing up Star Wars. <laughs> I just was bringing that as an example of what makes me happy ben, at the moment. don't ever bring up Star Wars on the and show again. I didn't bring it up. It I was know ben. Benjamin did. I'm just saying I know that w- that's what he was getting at. I wasn't. Let's, you don't know where I was going. I never got there. Let's test Ben. Let's test Ben. Because Ben <laughs> is fluent in German. Ooh. Ben. Yes. Darth Vader. Hmm. What does it mean in German? 
<laughs> it's not German. Yeah, it's it's not German. What does it mean? But um, a fun fact. What does it mean in, in German? In German, hmm? they Uh-oh. they say Darth Waiter. Was that fun? Darth Waiter. What, what, like Waiter. In my experience, when someone prefaces their comment with fun fact, it doesn't really end up being fun. And oh, then, that was fun. So in English, Yoda speaks with German grammar, but in German, Yoda speaks with English grammar. Really? Wow. Yeah. So was Yoda making fun of German? Well, like everything in Star Wars is like based off of like. Go like, ahead. Has like a German influence. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really. Sorry to burst your bubble. It, it isn't. Sorry. It, yeah, it, it is. It's based on, you know, the the Star Wars universe. This segment brought on. to you by Geeks R Us <laughs> and the what, German what makes, Travel Council. What makes you happy, Matt? It's World Health Day. How do you make yourself emotionally, not, mentally happy? Taze it. That's one way to do it. Another way is no housework day. Today we don't do anything. No housework. I, what makes me happy is going on a walk. Really? Can't do it till the show's over. Okay. You just but, put your headphones in. But at this rate, it's never going to happen. Do they allow skateboards on campus here at BYU? No, I don't believe so. Okay. I, it, it's kind of dangerous if you're walking around and some kid comes flying by on a yeah. skateboard. I did a little longboarding mm. on my when I was spring breaking. Okay. And... A little. When do, I, a little have, is the operative word. Do they there. have training wheels for skateboards? Hmm. But I just I rode it about I don't know twenty feet. Did you wrap yourself in foam? <laughs> I should have. <laughs> so you didn't fall down because the whole time I, that's what I'm thinking. I'm going to fall hip. and break a hip. Break a hip. Break a hip. <laughs> no more dip. Because I dance a lot. But it was fun. It was way fun. It so was enjoyable. I'm going back to spring break. In, those those in a memories. While. Help mm-hmm. you to be happy in the moment. That's what brings me happiness. All right. Watching a movie. I would love to watch Star Wars. Yeah. Talking about Star Wars a year before the movie comes out. Right. I'd rather die. You'll only hear about it from me when there's a new trailer. Talking about any trailer. <laughs> yeah, but there are like three new superhero trailers every oh, no, month. I know. I know. It just keeps going. Don't See, get I, started on I've been Marvel. trying to keep those bat, you know, under wraps. Flow chart. All I want are flow charts. From ne- next time you come in to talk to me do about you want a, Do you want a calendar of upcoming movies? No. Oh, I don't like, want a calendar. There's 40 of them if you All want I to want get it. is a flow chart showing where's Darth Maul versus Vader. Now, do you want the cartoons and the movies cuz they all kind of intertwine? Uh, no cartoons. Really? Because cartoons are not considered a real no, they are. Star Wars event. They're part of the oh, the you. new updated canon. You need a life. I'm so worried. I feel trapped. It's okay. It's okay. You have to find a happy place. I feel, tra- I feel <laughs> trapped. Did you hear about this mother? Hmm. This is sad. Mother can't stop eating her armchair. Oh, yeah. The pictures of this are just crazy. She, so a mother of one has, de- has developed a craving. I said always this. It's foam from an armchair. For sponge. Oh. And she eats the sponge out of her armchair. Yeah, I think she spilled some soda on it. No. She just It keeps, sounds really moist, the foam yeah. does. She keeps picking at this chair. Vicky Cullen, 28, not only eats the padding from her armchair, but buys wash up, washing up sponges to snack on. 
and likes to add foam to her recipes when cooking. How do you add foam? I don't know. <laughs> I'll have a gallon of foam, please. The single mother from Wakefield, South Yorkshire, estimated that she has eaten her way through 2,000 sponges since she developed the obsession oh. when she was five months pregnant. Wow. That can't be good for you. No. You'd think there'd be a foam buildup. Honey, where's my loofah? <laughs> Sorry, I was hungry. Oh, my heaven. So, so for the last four months or so, she has been just downing sponges. So it's an eating disorder, right? The, it's it's going to it make her sick. The picture that was accompanied the article had her sitting in the chair, just eating, and like the arm of the chair was just open, and she was just taking, you know, and she snacking. swallows it. Yeah, it's it's a taste thing. It's a texture. It's a here's how they described it. Yeesh. Vicky's Vicky mainly snacks on her large armchair in her living room. It's a single yellow and white colored chair, and I particularly like jam or Nutella on the foam pieces. In the morning, I like to dip them in orange juice. <laughs> that is sad. That's is. like tragic. It is. That baby's going to come out looking weird. I think she's already had the kid. Okay, good. No word on if the kid has a similar is hank- he- hankering from some foam from the, the, the living room couch or <laughs> is something. He, is he like bloated? Is it a, I don't know. Is he an extra squishy <laughs> child? Lots of foam in that one. That kid's got a lot of baby fat. Oh, that ain't baby fat. <laughs> That's foam. Man, can you imagine coming home, just the husband? Hey, what happened to the couch? <laughs> or you'd say, hey, what's for dinner? And she says, the couch. Yeah. Here, passes just some ketchup and have at some it. ketchup. <laughs> Do you want some fry sauce with your sponge couch? Oh. Isn't that tragic? That's sad. I don't know why we're laughing. Because it's, yeah. It's sad. It's, it's almost funny. It's so sad. Because she dips it in Nutella. Come on. I mean, just dip your finger in the Nutella for crying out loud. Save yourself some. She wants a little foam with it. Man. <laughs> you think it's chewy? I'm sure. Oh. I'm sure. Man, I she would die. I just was looking for a foam cover for, what do they call it, like memory foam for my bed. Oh, right. For her, that's got to look like just a huge Big Mac. <laughs> I'm so hungry right now. It's like. Whatever, a king size or a queen size foam. Mm, that could, that's like a one month supply. We should send her a big foam. Let's not send her anything. <laughs> I'm going to make an executive decision. <laughs> Let's send her a foam care package. Let's not no. send her anything. Let's not try to encourage this. <laughs> You've heard of the kids that eat pencils and yep. glue, glue, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Ben, I saw Ben sniffing glue the other day. Whoa. Well, that's different. And a marker. Ben's just trying but, to cope with his And then he's day-to-day. like, I'm not – what? What? I'm like, dude, are you sniffing the I, markers? I and he's stop. like, no. But he's like got blue marker on his like, nose. like, I can stop at any time. There's a reason for that, Matt. What was the reason? Don't you know, worry about it. You don't want to talk about yeah. it. He just was trying to figure out what color it was. It's not each, that kind of marker, but I wanted to see if each color had a different smell. Yeah. Is that why you had every color? Okay. That makes sense. Hey, um, Ted Cruz in – New York. Yep. How's it going? Not good for Ted. Ted's, yeah. Ted's Should we talk about it? Line. Yeah. Let's get to the headlines. What's going on, Terry? Ted Cruz didn't make a lot of friends in the Empire State when he attacked Donald Trump in January. 
in a debate for his, uh, quote, New York values. Everyone understands that the values in New York City are socially liberal or pro-abortion or pro-gay marriage. Focus is around money and the media, Cruz argued during the Fox Business debate. Now as Cruz jockeys to rob Trump of the delegates necessary to clinch the Republican nomination, the Texas senator seems to have suddenly warmed to the idea of New York values just in time for the state's primary on April 19th. During a rally in the, on the Bronx Wednesday, Cruz explained in his derogat- that in his uh, derogatory New York values remark, he hadn't meant all of New York. He only meant liberal democratic values. I thought that was all of New York. Apparently, he's trying to say, no, it's not. Not the hundred people in the Bronx. Now, Trump yesterday had a, uh, a rally, mm-hmm. and uh, he talked about, uh, just play clip three. <laughs> Lion Ted. Lion Ted. <laughs> he is Lion Ted. You know, I came up with the idea, but you have to spell it right. It's L Y I N apostrophe. Lion Ted. The Bible held high. He puts it down and then he lies. <laughs> wow. <laughs> then he goes on to, Trump goes on to say, I'm big with Christians. Christians like me. They're like a straight shooter. Yeah, they do. So that's kind of what we're getting from okay, our presidential candidates sure, now. Sure, sure. Kind of interesting. If you're planning a major party's presidential nominating convention, yeah, if it wasn't already complicated enough, Donald Trump's candidacy has made it more difficult than ever. A number of corporations, which in previous years sponsored the Republican and the Democratic national conventions, are saying, staying on the sidelines in 2016. The reasoning they don't want to be tied to the Trump mm. name, and they don't want to boycott just one convention out of fear of looking partisan. Corporations don't want their name or brand near Trump, and if they don't participate in Cleveland, that means they can't play ball for the Democrats either. An unnamed source uh, involved with planning for both events has told The Hill, which is a blog, they have, to, they have to do both or nothing, so people who have basically been a part in a big way in the past are just saying no to 2016. I don't believe that. Me either. I think they just they don't like any of the candidates. <clears throat> well, they're trying to be. I'm not. They're saying they're nonpartisan. They sponsor no both way. That's conventions. I mean, if you went and looked historically, are these companies all nonpartisan, or do they go with winners? Well, but when it comes to their advertising dollars, they don't want to see see as if they're siding with one side over the other. Right. In the past, they they sponsored both conventions. Right. So you would just sponsor both conventions if it was about the democratic process. But if it's about the people, if you don't want your brand associated with Donald Trump, there you go. or if you don't want your brand associated with Hillary Clinton, you're not going to have your brand associated with those people. You could have it associated with the convention, yeah, but they don't want to go there. No. Because it's about the people. It's funny. <laughs> this is scary. The Obama administration is refusing to publicly support draft legislation that would force tech companies to help authorities crack encrypted data. Uh, sources familiar with the discussion said on Wednesday, though President Obama indicated last month that he might agree that a law that law enforcement should have a way to access encrypted data after the Department of Justice tried to force Apple to break into the uh, San Bernardino shooter's iPhone. The administra- administration reportedly remains divided on the issue. Sources said the measure is sponsored by Senator Richard Burr and Dianne Feinstein, the Republican chairman and top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and could be introduced as early as this week. The Justice Department ended its legal action against Apple last week. So mm. now it looks like the Obama administration might be rethinking their position on the encrypted data huh. to see you know where that goes. Yeah. Uh, getting into top colleges, we had a uh, story that I, we, I don't think we shared it on the air, but we talked about it, where a girl got into all eight yeah. Ivy League schools. That was cool. 
Another girl here got into five Ivy League schools, plus Stanford. Wow. Right? So really smart individuals. You you have your your grades, test scores, extracurriculars all play a role, but a big part of it is your essay. You got to write a great essay. You got to write an essay. Oh, I heard this. So she wrote an essay so you can kind of show off your SAT worthy vocabulary and also attempting to stand out from the crowd. Brittany Stenson, 18 years old from Concord High School in Delaware. The essay she wrote happened to be about her love for Costco. Oh. I thought I thought she's the one that wrote the essay about how to write an essay no, to she, get into college. This was about Costco. She, <laughs> she wrote about the wholesale superstore helping her earn her place at five Ivy League schools, Columbia, Penn, Dartmouth, Cornell, and wow. Stanford. The essay prompt asks students to write about a background, identity, interest, or talent that is so meaningful that their application would be incomplete without it. She uh, grew up going to Costco with her parents, described how the kingdom of Costco and the, the essay meant more to her than just inexpensive 12 packs of paper towels. She said she learned all these lessons right. from there, learned about – she'd see a product and wonder what that was and go find out how what it was. How to get a free sample. Right. All kinds of things. So she goes, I knew writing about my experience at Costco would at least make for a memorable essay, oh. whether the admission committees loved it or hated it. On, on the other hand, I felt that the essay ended up being such an accurate representation of me and my personality. That's fantastic. Plus, maybe Costco will throw her some money. Possibly. All this great advertising. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Man, write an article about Costco. Not a bad idea. But you got to be creative, right? Hey, what if I told you that you could talk to your boss and get your boss to lower your work week uh, that you're required to be at work from 40 to 32 hours? I'm not asking you, Ben. Um, I only work 20, so. Yeah. Mm, Work. I mean, it's up for debate. You're here. Yeah. I I sit here for three hours a day. But you do a great job. Um, Well, our next guest is going to be filling us in on how she pitched a 32-hour work week to her boss and how they accepted it. She's going to give us the ideas. If you have been wanting to, uh, you know, Change your hours, change your schedule up a little bit. She'll be giving us the do's, the don'ts, the ins, and the outs on how to uh, talk to your boss about changing the schedule. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever wished that uh, you could you could work less and maybe make more or at least get yourself some free time to, to go do what you needed to do, maybe pick up some other side work? Well, Nikki Carter is a New Orleans-based writer and editor. She runs a personal blog and has written for a number of websites, including the award-winning GoNola.com. She has an MBA and an undergraduate degree in marketing and will begin an accelerated BSN program this fall. Nikki has extensive experience in healthcare, specifically within the areas of education and training and quality. And uh, she wrote an article, How I Pitched a 32-Hour Work Week to My Boss, basically, and I got it. And uh, this article was in businessinsider.com. I was fascinated by the idea because there are so many people that uh, maybe – that don't fit the traditional kind of 40-hour uh, uh, 
a week work week. So we are honored to have her on the show. Nikki Carter, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Talk to us about uh, this. What uh, what made you want to move from a you know a forty hour a week employee to thirty two? Well, I think um, I you know having worked, I worked in direct patient care when I first graduated, and then for the past um, maybe six or seven years, I've worked in administrative positions, and I found a lot of times with the forty hour structure. Um, it seems that a lot of office workers, you know, we have more time than we need to do our job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt I'm a big person. You know, I always want to be efficient. I always want to maximize what I'm doing. I have many interests outside of work. And so my thing was always, you know, why do we have to be here? You know, you when your boss tells you, um, as long as you get your eight hours in, I'm fine. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. it's like, why, when I, I worked in Arkansas briefly um, at a university, and it was very, it was a lot more flexible, and it was very much, um, we were salaried, and it was, if you finish your project, um, we trust you, and that's it. Yeah. And I felt like we, the team there was more productive, if that makes sense. Oh, um, for sure. Because your, your job is to get the project done versus re- right. hours required, right? Getting your hours in. Right. And I feel like when you're focused on an hour when you're in that mindset, you stretch your projects. Mm-hmm. You're like, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be sitting here bored at the end of the week. <laughs> it's so true. But I mean, don't, I mean, there really is a lot of downtime and playtime and fun time, right. which, which I guess isn't a bad idea if you want to build like a culture and have everybody connected and unified around the purpose. But it seems like it's, if your job is just to get something done, and if almost like projects more might this might work more like in a consulting mentality, but let's yeah. just get the job done and get out of here. That's the thing is I think it has to be kind of like a project based environment. If you're um I don't know, I was thinking about that actually. If you're in a direct customer facing or client facing role, I think it'd be a lot harder. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I mean, having worked in patient care, I think maybe if you had a couple flex employees or part time who came in, you it could be done you yeah. could still offer it to your employees but you you decided in the end it was worth you reevaluating what you do and then taking a proposal to your boss and you you took the proposal talk to us how you went through and made sure you know that the pitch that you presented to your boss would work I actually um, I kind of touched on this in the article at the time that I wanted to make the pitch um retention was a big deal we we opened this new facility in new orleans university medical center um it was a huge undertaking and we were you know going to change facilities they were recruiting all these people and so they were putting a lot of effort into recruitment and retention and so you know they said we spend x amount of money and energy um bringing these people on we don't want them to leave and so i started working here and i actually thought when I left my old job, I was like, you know, this is going to be this new challenge. I'm not going to feel the same as I did at my old job. And then I started working here and I was like, I love it, but I still feel the same way. I still think it still has the same challenges in that I think I could use my time better. Mm -hmm. Um, And so after I maybe one, I want to say maybe two months of working here, um, I had some successes, you know, my boss was happy. I could tell she was happy with my performance. And so at that time I went to her um, and kind of 
presented it from that angle because I knew they were really focused on retention. And I said, you know, I really want to stay here, but I also have these other interests that I want to have time to pursue. And I feel like I can do everything. I feel, I feel like I can still be successful at everything that I'm doing here. Um, and here's how, and I kind of just showed her, you know, I was, re- I think a big thing of it was being really flexible. Like I said, you know, if you need me here on a Friday, I'm not going to be rigid about it. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm, I'm always off on Friday. Right. Or I'm always off on this day. You know, I'm flexible. I'm open. Um, it seemed like, I don't know, like, well, it seemed like one thing you did that, that was really important is you knew, you knew what your, your numbers were, basically. You knew what you were doing. You knew how much time you could do it in. Right. You knew you could get the same amount of workload done in 32 hours. Right. And, and so just knowing that, I mean, I think a lot of us don't have a clue, like how long <laughs> it would really take us to do our job because we're used to just always being there 40 hours. But right. because you, you had kind of known that that would work. And then you were also, I think, an interesting part is, and, and you make a big deal about this, is you understood how this would benefit the employer. So you went in and showed your boss how it benefits them. Right. And that came from because at my previous job, I tried to ask for a raise and a lot of research and time and thought went into that. I was really nervous about it. Um, and it was mo- and a lot of what I found when I was researching that was to kind of position it as why, you know, how you're benefiting the employee, not, oh, I need this money because X, Y and Z, you right. know, because they're not going to respond well to that. I mean, as with any negotiation, I suppose. So, um it, it, that kind of came from that, you know, and now actually budget and, and financial aspect is a big deal right now here. So I, I've actually, since the article went up, um, two other people in the department went to the same kind of um, schedule and it was actually for a different reason. It was to save the department money hmm. and to kind of protect their position. Oh, interesting. I mean, I yeah. guess that's well, and here's what would scare me, Nikki, is uh, the, you know, all of a sudden you're, it, it gets more successful. Three or four people now want to do it, but some of them may not have the same character you do or the same diligence right. or efficiency. And uh, does that ever worry you that now others could mess up your life? Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> well, like I'm just sitting there thinking all of a sudden three or four want the same kind of a deal and two of them fall through and they're not as productive. So they they close down the whole opportunity for everyone. I don't know. I think it's more on a case-by-case basis, at least in this department it Good. is. Yeah. Um, you feel I secure. Because I'm leaving to go to nursing school um, to do that accelerated program, and I know when they post the position, they're going to raise it back up to a regular FD. Because my hmm. boss did say, you know, not everybody has good time management, um, yeah. so we, we just want to be safe. Well, I mean, so. and that's the, that's part of this, isn't it? you got to make sure you, you're the right candidate to be able to do this. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to know, I think when I said I looked at my role to figure out how I could efficiently do it, I mean, you have to be a person that has um, discipline, right? So you have to, you know, minimize the distractions. But I mean, the, the my thing is, why would you want to be sitting on your phone surfing social media at work? You know right. what I mean? Like, right. what do you, don't you just want to do a good job and then have time to travel and... No. <laughs> well, and like you, and you could go write. You could go do pick yeah. up two or three other things. Some, Anything. some, yeah, maybe some. You know, they just want the one job. Does one, a, yeah, yeah, I think that's a big thing. Like my my fiance is an artist. He loves his job. Like 
there's no way he would want to reduce his hours to pursue anything. <laughs> you know, this is his right. life. So I think it just depends on you. Totally. Do you, um, did you notice, because one of the things you were willing to do too is make a financial adjustment if necessary. So if, yeah. if, if, they, if you're going to cut 20% of your uh, time at work, um, you were willing to take, I guess, up to like a 20% cut. Right. Did, did, did yeah. that end up having to happen? That did happen um, because we're salaried, and so they adjusted the salary accordingly. Um, that wasn't negotiable because my pay isn't project-based. Right. Um, it was hourly-based. So, um, Were yeah, other I benefits did. taken off the table? Did that make no. you no longer a full-time employee, or you were still full-time? I don't really know the ins and outs of Obamacare, but I think that because yeah, I think a 30-hour week is full-time, um, I, I'm still... Yeah. Benefits eligible. Yeah. That's great. So, I mean, again, you took it right to that edge that you could, willing to adjust the income, <laughs> but you're going to, you probably could go make more income doing some extra writing or more valuable maybe is just having time off or having a life. Yeah, I think it was, well, a good thing for me was that when I changed jobs, I, I got a pay increase. And so taking the pay cut kind of brought me to where I was already comfortable. So that was okay. Um, so it was kind of like, having the same range of pay, but having a lot more time off. Um, and then I did increase my freelance work. At the time when I made the proposal, I was trying to go full-time with freelance, and then it just became more, it's more of a supplement at yeah. this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really... But you wouldn't have had fun. it if you hadn't asked for it, right? Yeah, and that's what I think is like, you know, even if she said no... I mean, what's the word? I mean, that's what happened with when I asked for my raise at my last job, they told me no, and... At that point, you can either say, okay, I accept this, or I'm not happy about this, and so what is my next step? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, I mean, ultimately, you have to ask. Yeah, and and I think another really important part is you communicated it to the rest of your team. I mean, and and I guess that's a good thing to sit down with your boss, and if they agree to this, you could sit there and say – Okay, how do you want this presented? What do you want me to say to the team? What don't you want me to say? Because if all of a sudden you look like you're working a lot less, everyone's going to freak out. Like, how come Nikki's not working? (laughs) And then they get petty and, yeah, cause problems. No, that was a big thing. Yeah, and that that actually, as I said, was not a big deal. I was worried that it would be a big deal, but it wasn't. I mean, people – a big thing was for people to just know that, you know, I took a pay cut. So they're not like, oh, she's making the same amount of money, but she does, she's never here. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, it's been really good. Well, I think it's I, I think it gives us all hope, right? Because some everyone's situation is different. And, and for some, yeah. they just want more time with their family and it's worth a little money. And, and some might not have to change their money. You know, if your value, right. if you can prove your value and you haven't. Uh, you know, you haven't asked for more money recently or whatever, you might be able to do such a deal and not shift your money. You could, yeah. Or you could even do, you know, where you work 10 hours a day. Um, That's, you know, pretty taxing, but you can do that where you fit it in four days. Um, I know, um, or, you know, maybe it's something even like you're not a morning person, Mm -hmm. so your boss lets you work 11 to 8 or something like that, you know? Um, because we're not all ro- we're not all robots who are morning people who are all on the same schedule, um, and I think it's yeah. I mean, like you said, everyone's different. So no, I don't think everyone should only work four days a week. Like I said, like my partner loves his job; right. he would never want to do that. Um, but I think if you're in a place where you're kind of like, I want to pursue other things, or something's a little off, or I'm not you know completely fulfilled, it's like look at 
you know, what can you ask for or change mm-hmm. um, to kind of get to that point? Well, with 70 percent of employees, they say, are disengaged. And a lot oh, of it wow. is they may they may like their job. They may even like they may not hate it. But it just might be sapping them. So maybe this is something you ask for a little shift where you right. just shift your schedule a little bit so that you can maybe go find yourself and you'll yeah. either come back a yeah. better employee or you'll be done, you know? Yeah, or you'll go on another path, yeah. which I think is fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I read one time, you know, work, it's not, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's part of it. Everything that you do to improve any area of your life, I think, strengthens everything else. Yeah, right. And it's like... You know, that's kind of viewing it all as a whole. Well, I, I think it took somebody, though, Nikki, like you, to A, do it, but then B, write about it. Because I'll bet you you've changed a lot of minds out there. That It's really interesting. Yeah, somebody told me, because I was like, why is this such, getting such a big so deal? <laughs> yeah, and my friend was like, I never would have known about this before you. And I guess because we learned about it in business school. They talked to us about alternative work arrangements. And so I always was just like, you know, I thought it was more of a thing that was in startups. And so <laughs> yeah. since I've worked in a corporate environment, you know, it was kind of risque for me to ask for it. But um, I didn't realize. And then, you know, through talking to her and other people, I realized people don't even know that, you know, they they can or they yeah. don't even question things. Well, you just made it a new possibility for a lot of people. So yeah. we appreciate it, Nikki. Great work there. And good luck uh, with you your so nursing degree. Thank you. Knock them dead. Nikki Carter is her name. You can find out more at iHeart, uh, iHeartNola.com. Uh, look up Nikki Carter, and uh, you can see more of her articles there. Great stuff. Thank you, Thank you Nikki. Bye. Really powerful when you think about it. Just dare to ask, but gather the data and, and honestly, ask. Um, mix it up a little bit. It might allow you to go to school. It might allow you to just get healthy again. It might allow you – so instead of having to dichotomize it in either or, either I work or I have a life, don't dichotomize it. Find a deal – find a, a different mix of your work-life balance, right? It's your life and all you can do is ask. If they say no, okay, we'll find out another way. But um, powerful, interesting. Um, 32-hour work week without necessarily a little pay cut, but not necessarily a benefits cut. And it keeps your foot in the door. We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back, continue the discussion on the other side, do a little coach's corner. Plus, uh, one of our producers, Leanna Tan, is going to – she has a solution for how to fix the presidential election. It might be a little extreme, but it does have historic precedence. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. everybody to the Matt Townsend show little coach's corner for you um, Nikki brought up some interesting ideas uh, if we are going to take on the idea that 70% of the workforce in the United States is disengaged there's obviously something that uh, is not working right right so we have to figure out what that is and I guess I could just go in and coach a company or work with a company to figure out what's going on with their people. Or we could just, on the radio, try to help you figure out what's going on with you. 
What is it that's driving you or not driving you? And obviously, in Nikki's case, where she talks her boss from a 40-hour work week down to a 32-hour work week, took a little pay cut. But in the end, I think what she also did is she ended up basically – she knew what she was into. She knew what her driver was. She knew what moved her and what pushed her along. And I worry that many of us don't have a clue. We don't have a clue what our drivers are. So here's a little activity that I want you to to just kind of walk through with you and I want you to think about. Think of a situation when you feel that you are at your very, very best. Think of like a scenario where you uh, you have got your game on and you're nailing it, right? So as you think about it, who are the people that you're with in that situation? Are the people – is it kind of people-centric where it's the people you're with that make it so valuable and incredible? Or what are you doing in the situation? Are you at work? Are you performing a leadership function? Are you – you know, what are you doing? And what emotions are you feeling as you are doing this activity? It's a very basic thing. What may, where are you at your very best? Well, I'm in front of the TV watching myself some Matlock and eating some Cheetos. Okay. All right. Let's dig a little deeper then. Because <laughs> if that is your ultimate goal is just to get away from work and life so you can get to TV to watch your Netflix binge, um, then we might be missing something. Right, We might be basically missing what your driver is. Maybe your driver is to no longer be in the stressful workplace. But there's a reason why when people retire, their likelihood of uh, living longer starts to decrease and their ability to be healthier even decreases. We would think just being free from work would make us healthier, but that's not always the case. So we've got to figure out what the drivers are. Are the drivers the people around you? Are the drivers your opportunity to be creative and imaginative and inventive? Is it just being more optimistic? Sometimes work might be a difficult place for you because the people around you aren't optimistic. It's so doom and gloom, so negative. Maybe one of your drivers is to have just more playfulness or have a, a more spiritual connection to something and you're not getting that at work. So you've got to figure out what it is that moves you. And as you look through the people that you're with and the activities you're doing, what are – what's specific about the activities? What drives that activity to be so valuable to you? What is it that you are doing in that activity? Are you more creative? Are you more in a leadership role? Are you more, um, you know, with people and engaging other people? Because whatever you're doing, it's telling something about you, right? It's telling you that I need to go be – I need to go be with people more. And I sit too much in my cubicle and this job is great, but it's not – I'm not where I need to be. Because if we can discern what the drivers are, for example, about being with people, then we could actually take what you do every day and start to say, how can I now engage more people at my work? It might simply be you're in a rut. You're in a habit of not talking to people in your office because, you know, you move from sales to customer support and you spend so much time on the phone talking to people that, 
or angry that you never get to talk to the people around you. That might be why it's valuable to cut eight hours out of your workday so you don't have to do that as much. Or you've got to figure out a way to engage people. Maybe start taking lunches with the people around you. Um, once you kind of know the people driver and the the uh, action or the pattern driver. For example, I'm noticing – and it took a year and a half probably to get used to it. But the early schedule of the show is just hard for me. I don't think – I don't think our creator wants us up this early to do this show. Creator as in Don Schlein or God? Yeah, Don Schlein. OK. No, the real creator. And he doesn't want us up this early. Don wants us up. But it's hard. It's a hard thing for me. And – but then I thought, well, what did I used to do during this time? And it was just sleeping. <laughs> Wasted time. But man – it allows me to do what I love to do and it allows me to be with people that are great and it allows me to engage my emotions and my feelings in a healthier way. So it's kind of worth it, right? It's worth it. But in the end, that's a decision every one of us needs to make. What drives you? Do you feel like you're using your best gifts? How do you want to be remembered? These are all questions that you could be asking yourself. At your funeral – what would you want everyone to say about you and how you worked? What do you want your kids to say about what you contributed to in your professional life? I remember hearing at my grandfather's funeral what a great man he was. He built a company, but also how many lives he helped, how many people, how many families he took care of, of his employees that had had problems or, you know, this was back before the day where everyone was insured and in a mining company. What do you want your family to say about you and how you worked and how you changed lives? These are all questions that can help you get deeper into what drives you and what motivates you. Just go start uncovering it and see what it teaches you. And then let's see if we can't start adapting our life a little bit more to it. Interesting stuff, folks. That's the Coach's Corner. We'll take a break. Come back. When we come back, we may have an answer, according to one of our producers, for how to handle this uh, this crazy political season. And it's just going back to history. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. You know, this 2016 campaign is getting pretty heated. And with all the name-calling and sabotaging going on in the elections, you might be wondering if politics were always this brutal. Well, today, politicians, uh, you know, they didn't just make up this stuff with all the ruthless tactics. These tactics have been handed down, you know, for years, since our forefathers, before we had one of uh, – we had talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that we've got to really research um, – all of this maybe violence in politics. So we decided Leanna Tan's the one that we needed to, to be over this. And she went and uh, has researched it extensively and has figured out how the political process works, you know, from the old days to back in history all the way up to today. Leanna Tan, listen up. Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. Imagine this. 
Two men stare across the field from each other, eyes blazing on a hot July morning, 1804. One man slowly raises a pistol, pointing it directly at the other man, and pulls the trigger. The bullet speeds through the air, but just a little too high, and whips past the man on the other side. The other man draws his own pistol, points it directly at his opponent's torso, and fires, lodging the bullet in his opponent's spine and sending him to his death. This is the account of the most famous duel in American history between Vice President Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. You think political debates are crazy now, but they are only a fraction of the intensity as they used to be. Way back when, people used to settle their disputes with bullets, not words. Somehow they thought that solving personal offenses by shooting a ball of lead into another human being with the intent of mortally wounding them would increase civility throughout society. Duels had to be carried out on a proper field of honor with equally deadly weapons. Even though both men probably thought they looked real macho showing up ready to put their life on the line in defense of their pride and their family. No one really wanted to die, and I don't think anyone really wanted to commit murder either. But it depended on the severity of the insult. So maybe if you made fun of the guy's hair, Why are you might just fight until you got scratched on the arm. But if you insulted his mama, you might be in for a life-threatening night. I shouldn't have said that. I should not have said that. Usually, each guy just got one shot. And sometimes they would purposefully miss or aim to just barely injure the other person. Then they would go off their merry ways with the satisfaction in knowing that they were willing to risk death and were brave enough to protect their reputation by staring down the barrel of a gun. Male pride. Something I will just never understand. (sighs) But that wasn't always the case. Another very seasoned duelist was Andrew Jackson. Estimates of the number of duels Jackson participated in range from 5 to 100. Holy moly! Talk about a guy that needs to watch his temper. The most famous of Jackson's duels was his confrontation with a guy named Charles Dickinson. Dickinson accused Jackson of cheating on a horse bet. Okay, maybe a Class C misdemeanor. But then Dickinson brought out the big guns, dragging Jackson's wife into the picture and calling Rachel Jackson a bigamist. <gasps> oh no, he That obviously got Jackson's blood boiling and raised the stakes to a full-fledged duel to the death. Jackson and Dickinson met on a field of honor on May 30th, 1806. Dickinson was known for being a sharpshooter, so the only way Jackson could beat him would be if he allowed himself enough time to take an accurate shot. So they walked eight paces and turned to each other. Jackson took a deep breath and allowed Dickinson to fire into his chest. The bullet lodged in his ribs, but Jackson barely batted an eyelash and calmly raised his pistol at Dickinson. But when Jackson pulled the trigger, his gun didn't fire. According to dueling etiquette, this should have been the end of the duel. But Jackson, probably thinking of his wife's tainted name all over the town's tabloids, Oh, did you see that? was not finished with Dickinson bullet still lodged in his ribs, he recocked his pistol and fired again, this time striking Dickinson dead. Yes, this was the same Andrew Jackson who became the seventh president of the United States. Using guns to solve political disputes is pretty brutal, but before pistols were invented, people used to impale other human beings with large pieces of sharp metal, also known as sword fighting. Sounds like a very painful and intricate way to solve problems to me, but apparently dueling with swords is still somewhat popular today. Although, now it's just for sport. I met a practice duelist, Daniel Goldberg, who gave me an idea of what it's like to be in an actual duel. So how do you win a duel? We have a, uh, I'm going to call it the kill zone, on the torso, the inside of the of the thighs or the head or the neck. You can do a tip draw, which is dragging the tip like six inches across them, or an edge draw, which is, uh, again, six inches of edge. That's considered a kill. 
You can also wound them by hitting arms or legs. What's the scariest part about dueling? Probably when they're lunging and you realize that your sword is not in a good position to block. Because a sword can, in one hit, can do a lot of damage. So do you think that they should bring dueling back to politics? It would certainly make the debate more interesting now, wouldn't it? No, because I do not think it would be a good idea to bring, bring survival of the fittest into politics. Okay, it probably wouldn't be a great idea to bring back the tradition of settling disputes by a literal one-shot-you're-out system. But is the practice of dueling really even extinct? You might not find politicians wielding swords or pulling pistols on each other nowadays, but you can find the ruins of today's defeated politicians amidst the carnage of hashtags, tweets, and tabloids, right? (sighs) Well, there you have it. Political duels in a nutshell. Now, go create civility throughout society without fighting anyone to the death. And remember, like a wise man once said, words kill faster than bullets do. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. It's actually nearly afternoon for you on the East Coast. And for Ted Cruz, Hillary, Bernie, they're all back east and the Donster. So it's probably noon. It's time for Ted to go maybe get some pizza and get yelled at by someone on the street. Can we play my favorite cut of the morning so far? Let's do it. Clip six. Or actually clip three. Excuse me. Lion Ted. Lion Ted. He is Lion Ted. You know, I came up with the idea, but you have to spell it right. It's L-Y-I-N apostrophe. Lion Ted. The Bible held high. He puts it down and then he lies. (laughs) Why? That's a t-shirt. That's a t-shirt. Bible held high. Bible puts down. Then he lies. Just say it that way. Yeah. It'd be great. In two Corinthians. Make a hat. Yeah. Then you come back with the two Corinthians. He shouldn't talk about the Bible. No, he really shouldn't. <laughs> but Lion Ted, that's just – Ted's out of his element. He's in New York in a place where, you know, he's already dissed the New Yorkers, saying they've got those values, air mm-hmm. quotes. We know what they are. And if you remember the day after he said that, all the New York papers except the New York Times, the tabloids, went had a field day with it. Oh, yeah. Because it, they took it as you're accusing 20 million people of – being this type of person, which is wrong. Hmm. See, that's – yeah. This is New York politics, which is going to be interesting to see how Bernie and Hillary handle this. Hillary Clinton? Yeah. This morning, rode the subway. Was this, was that the first time? Uh, it's the first, first time, time she's in, ever got on the subway? In several years, she said. She no, really. How many times do you think Hillary Clinton has yeah, been on the subway? Just a handful. That's great. Yeah, she rode the subway because she's a real New Yorker. Did she, did she? Did you see that video of the guy sitting on the subway and he was asleep and a rat yeah. crawled over him? Yeah. They oh, say that happens quite a bit. But not when Hillary's on. No. They have a nice clean Secret car. Secret service. <laughs> Start shooting rats. Just picking them off. I got him, Madam Secretary. Interesting. Hey, you know how earlier, uh, last couple hours you've ruined the show? I have not ruined the show. 
talking about your love a of... really awesome Star Wars trailer that was released mm-hmm. this morning yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a minute 49 I believe yeah, yeah. minute 49 too long no it's actually really good you need to watch it is it a cartoon no okay well anyway I found something that might be more valuable for you to do mm, I'm, I'm not sure do you like running eh, no I'm not really built for running what do you mean? You got legs. There's really too much of me to move all at once in a coordinated fashion. You're a very thick, strong, muscly guy. Yeah. So I can stand in one place and lift things, but when I have yeah. to move in some coordinated fashion. Like you're less of a runner, more of a piano mover. There you go. I've moved plenty of I pianos know. in my day. Fridges. But, but you're, in, you're in great shape. You just, I just think, I think instead of getting into Star Wars like you do yeah. and wasting your life. Not really my life. Just a few fleeting moments. Seven times an hour. <laughs> Just um, on the first day. I think you ought to start running. Long distance running. Oof, no. There's a there's there's long distance runners. There's a guy named Mina or a, a, woman. a woman named Mina Gooley. She ran more than one thousand miles through seven deserts. Yeah. On seven continents. Really no reason to do this. In seven weeks. No. To raise awareness for worldwide shorter water shortages. I would find a different way to raise awareness. And I wish you'd find a different way to not talk about Star Wars. So I want running you... Running through the desert. Mm-hmm. Seven she jogged deserts. through the harsh conditions in Spain, Ugh. Jordan, Antarctica, Australia, South Africa, and Chile. It's amazing. Yeah. She finished in drought-stricken California, running her final leg through Death Valley and into Nevada. She went from a neg... Run, Forrest. Forrest, run, Forrest, run. She went from a negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit in Antarctica to 117 degrees Fahrenheit in Australia. She finished March 22nd. That is incredible. It's the equivalent of 40 marathons. Yeah. You need to do that. No, no, it's fine. Ben would be on your team. He could be, mm, you know, he could be your water boy. No, no. Now, watching her do this, it looked brutal. Yeah. It's hot. It's dusty because they're all deserts. But don't you think this is a better thing to watch Mm-mm. than just a trailer over and over and over? There's no spaceships. There's no Death Star. <sighs> there's no stormtroopers exactly. missing every shot they fire. It's just a lady running. <sighs> That's right. <sighs> Can't do that. Go, Mina, go. Run, my, Mina, run. My thought when it comes to marathons is... Mm-hmm. Somewhere along the way, someone built a car. So anything over three miles, I'm good. So I'll do a 5K. But she was doing it to to help everybody understand the importance of I, water. I would attempt one 5K to help people understand the importance of, of water. Okay. I'm just trying that's to why, help you. That's why that wouldn't be my cause. <laughs> it's, um, it's World Health Day. Yes. Who? 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 That's the World Health Day. Organization. organization. This is yeah. World Health Day. Who? So it's like wood. It's like wood. It's it's. What? Did he just speak German? I don't know what he did. No, that was English. Okay, not really. Uh, World Health Organization puts together the oh, World Health Day. Okay, so it is who? 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 World Health Organization. Who? And my thought was, if you're mentally happy. You're yeah. emotionally happy. Do something that makes you happy on World Health Day, and it'll be another step towards better health because you're positive mentally. You're in a right. happy place. But that doesn't have to be a Star Wars. For me, that works. Yeah, but what your health 
does to my health yes. is it makes it worse. When you bring up do Star I dr- Wars and do then I, drag I have you to, down? Well, I just have to ha- – some people aren't interested in that. And I fully understand that. I never said everyone should follow my example, but some could and I think they would benefit by being happier overall for the day because they watched this trailer. But some some things are destructive. Like you enjoy hitting your kid with a pool noodle. Great it's point. a pool noodle. He's fine. Not everyone should do that. And he hit me first. What if I walked up and started hitting your kid with a pool noodle? I would laugh because I know it's not hurting him. <laughs> your wife. He's fine. He's going to be so mad. He laughs and hits you back. It's, it's fine. How about this day? This is the long lost day nobody pays attention to. It's the metric system day. Yeah, there's a reason for that. This is America. Developed during the French Revolution. They do that in Canada. They don't do that in America. Yeah. Well, America and there's there, it's listed. America. There. What's the other two countries that don't use the metric system? Um, England doesn't. No, they do. No, they use um, inch and the mile. It's kind of a mix. Burma. Burma has its own. Like officially, like the the state. This is what we do, and it's the French developed the well, metric system. There so, you go. there you have it. There you go. But they also developed French fries. They did. So I mean, you French know, toast. French toast. Mm-hmm. The, fr- the French Quarter. Yeah, well, that's in Louisiana. But you know, <laughs> there's another thing. Yeah, French's mustard. Mm. Except that wasn't really developed there either. It just uses their name. Yeah, it's so. like Trump. It's just branded French. Yeah, it's not really. It's not really Trump, just branded Trump. Um, <laughs> so should we go metric? No. There was one that was, I forget his name now, but it was a Democratic presidential candidate Yeah, who started his campaign saying we need to go to the metric system. Yeah. At that point, everybody went- Was it went, Chafee? Who was it? Yeah, it was Chafee. Uh-huh. Everybody went, nope, goodbye. <laughs> it was like day one, you're out. <laughs> Sorry, that's not going to happen. <sighs> we can't go metric. You don't think so? You think we've gone? What's our system even called? Is there a name? There's the metric system. What's our system? um, Is it the American measuring system? Because nobody else really uses it. I think it's the imperial. Oh, the imperial. Isn't there an imperial march? Yeah. From Star Wars? This is a little bit different, though. It's different than that. Yeah. Yeah, we use, I think we use what they call the correct measurement system. The correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's the way my car measures distance so i go by that actually mine interesting thing yeah i threw mine into kilometers Ooh. so i was going 118 kilometers on the freeway did you back off and i'm like kids look how fast i'm going (laughs) and they all looked and they're like dad slow down and my wife freaked out you're going like what 60 and i'm like april fools (laughs) just running the metric system made you look um do you guys think it's inappropriate to gossip is it is it antisocial behavior or is it pro-social behavior? Is it a character flaw to gossip or does it give you an advantage and make you really a better social person? So first off, is all gossip bad? I don't know. Or is there, or is there good gossip? There's good gossip. If there's good gossip. <gasps> Timmy's pregnant. Or not Timmy's the boy. Uh, Stacy's pregnant. <laughs> Timmy's pregnant. What? <laughs> Stacy's having a baby. Oh, my La- heavens. Lassie, she is. What? She's so beautiful. Now, is that, that's probably good gossip. Now, if Stacy isn't married, okay, and lives with her parents, yeah, at the end of the road, 
And everybody's like, you know, Stacy's pregnant. Did you hear Stacy's pregnant? I hear Stacy's pregnant. That might be gossip. And it's meant in a derogatory, sort of derogatory yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Punitive that'd, way. That'd be bad. Well, we, Interesting. Our, guest, our guest coming up is going to be talking about the fact that we're social creatures, right? Hmm. And gossip actually could be helping our social skills. Like us personally. Mm-hmm. So is he looking at the effect on others or just what it does to the individual? I think it might be what it does to society in general. Oh, okay. Because if you're informed right. because of gossip, you can be more effective. At gossiping. Well, or just gathering information. Oh. They found out I, – I did a study on this. I actually was not – didn't do a study. I studied a study about uh, the guys on the military base that would go get their hair cut were more advanced and promoted in the military that, than those that didn't get their hair cut on base. Those that got their hair cut oh. on base because that's where the gossip would take place. Right. So they were informed and they knew kind of how the – They were socially networked. It's the they, whole lay uh-huh. of the land thing. They, they kind of know where uh-huh. to avoid places to talk to. Oh, that's mm. interesting. So we'll be talking with Dr. Frank McAndrew about uh, that research. You know, just, you know, evolutionarily, we've gossip's been a part of our life forever. There's probably good gossip, bad gossip. We'll get into that. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the world? We've talked about the conflict with uh, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz in New York as they prepare for the New York primary on April 18th. Democratic presidential candidate Senator uh, Bernie Sanders lashed out at rival and frontrunner Hillary Clinton Wednesday, saying the former Secretary of State is not qualified to be president. Speaking at a rally in Philadelphia, Sanders says that Clinton was unqualified because of her special interest funding, support for trade deals, and her vote for the war in Iraq. The Vermont senator attack comes after Clinton questioned whether Sanders is truly a Democrat. Late Wednesday, Clinton spokesman Brian Fallon responded to Sanders' attack, saying he has reached a new low. This is getting crazy. I'm telling you. We just talked about dueling. I know. Last hour. There might I, be a duel. Might be a duel. Americans have widely wrong perceptions of the membership of the Democratic and Republican parties, dealing with more stereotypes than reality. Hmm. For example, Americans estimate that about four in ten Republican voters make at least two hundred fifty thousand dollars per year. It's actually more like two in one hundred. On the other side of the aisle, Americans guess that almost a third of Democrats are in the LGBT community. <laughs> in real life, it's only six percent. African-American, union members, and atheists are likewise much less represented in the Democratic Party than is commonly perceived, while the GOP is younger, less evangelical, and less Southern than many guess. Wow. This data comes from a new study by researchers from UC Berkeley and Stanford. Uh, Researchers found the misconception is highest when partisans are imagining the other party, but both groups make significant mistakes about their own side also. And the more news savvy a person is, the more likely they are to conceptualize each party in these inaccurate stereotypes. So, again, it's the news's fault. Interesting. It's always the news's fault. Charles Barkley, former NBA player, called on the NBA Wednesday to take a stand against North Carolina's new anti-LGBT law by moving the 2017 All-Star Game from Charlotte. The new law requires transgender individuals to use public restrooms based on their gender that matches their birth certificate. As a black person, I am against any form of discrimination against whites, Hispanics, gays, lesbians, however you want to phrase it, the Turner Sports NBA analyst and Hall of Famer told CNN. It's my job with the position of power that I am in and being able to be on TV. I'm supposed to stand up for people who can't stand up for themselves. Hmm. 
That's Charles Barkley. Which is interesting because he's uh, he may run for office. He keeps saying he keeps talking someday. about running in Alabama, where he's and from. And he also says that he's not a role model, except he just basically claimed he's a role model. That might have been a shoe commercial, but no, didn't he say that years yeah. ago? He did in a shoe commercial. I'm not a role model, and uh-huh. he he backed it up later. But I think he's kind of coming around, understanding that at a certain point he is a role model. Yeah, he's so. got the press. Seven fans of the New England Patriots have filed lawsuits against the National Football League in an attempt to recover the first round draft pick their beloved team lost as a punishment for Deflate Gate, the scandal that involved uh, deflated footballs in the AFC title game last. I think it was last season. Was that last year? That was so long ago. That was. But they lost draft picks. They've that been was penalized two seasons ago, right? The, well, the. The thing came down last season, but right. it was two seasons okay, ago. Okay, two seasons ago. Uh, the suit alleges the league engaged in a common law fraud, negligence, and racketeering and the intentional infliction of emotional distress with its arbitrary and capricious penalties against our team or against the team for allegedly deflating footballs during the 2015 AFC Championship mm. game. One plaintiff, a season ticket holder from Connecticut, said the league's treatment of the Patriots has left his young daughter emotionally distressed, and a Florida man claims the situation has caused him to lose sleep. Wow. Lawsuits. See, and we thought Star Wars trailers were bad. <laughs> that guy needs a life, too, for heaven's sakes. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Will that story ever go away? Hey, we're going to take a break, folks, and come back, speak with Dr. Frank McAndrew about gossiping. Now, you know, we we came from tribal social groups evolutionarily, right? It used to serve us, apparently. Gossip used to be our friend, not our foe. We'll be talking with an expert about uh, its influence in our lives today. Stick with us, folks. We're uh, talking about gossip up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you probably can't forget the sound of whispers and giggles that filled the halls in high school. And after thinking it would, you know, go away after, you know, you graduated, you were probably disappointed to hear the exact same kinds of whisperings and giggles filling cubicles at the workplace. Gossip seems like almost an innate part of human nature. And no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to escape it. Whether it's whispers among coworkers or pictures filling the tabloids, we all know gossip can be damaging. It can burn bridges, hurt feelings, maybe kill reputations. But is it possible that gossiping can actually be good for us, too? Dr. Frank McAndrew, evolutionary social psychologist from Knox College, uh, joins us today from Illinois to explain why he thinks gossiping is not necessarily a character flaw. Dr. Frank McAndrew, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Matt. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you. I, To me, I, I love this topic, and I've always loved it just even since studying it back in college. We, we automatically have this kind of view of gossip. It's just wrong. It's mean. But, but talk to us. Evolutionarily, it's, it's been a part of our history for a, forever. Right. Yes. It's, it's, uh, we talk about it sometimes as if it's possible not to do it. Right. And it, you might as well ask people to stop breathing. It, it really <laughs> is a part of who we are, and we really don't have a choice. And I think it's gotten such a bad reputation because people have a very restricted idea about what it is. Yeah. Um, first of all, they think it's something other people do. When they gossip, 
they're just sharing information or looking out for somebody's well-being. They would never apply the G word to themselves. Right. But um, also we tend to focus on the negative stuff. And I don't deny that gossip can be used as a weapon. It can destroy reputations. Backstabbing can happen. Um, but that's not all there is to it. Whenever you're talking about other people and sharing information about them, um, you're gossiping. And sometimes that is very harmless. And when you're speculating about who's up for the next promotion, you're gossiping. But you're not necessarily saying bad things about people or sharing negative information. Hmm. That's, and that's an important distinction, right? Because we're human creatures. We're social creatures. We need information. So sharing of information can also be neutral. Right. And it can actually, even if you're sharing negative information, it can be serving a greater good. Uh, in some ways, knowing that other people are monitoring your reputation and talking about you makes you be a better person. Hmm. At work, if you're tempted to kind of slack off and let other people do your your work for them and cut corners wherever you can, knowing that people are going to be paying attention to that and spreading your reputation around forces you to do what you're supposed to do. So a lot of gossip, it's always perceived as negative by the person who's the target of it, but in, in fact can serve a greater good. Hmm. That's a really interesting way to look at it, that it's because it also keeps you in check, right? It keeps you doing your social good as well, being, be, being a part of the team. Well, that's right. And it helps you learn how to be part of a team. Uh, when you're the new person hired at a job, there are a lot of things people don't tell you. You know, how casually can you dress? Um, can you call the boss by his or her first name? Uh, is it okay to just run out of work as soon as quitting time comes or are you supposed to hang around a little bit? And by tuning in to hear what people are saying about other people, uh, you learn the rules informally, the things that nobody's going to come right out and say to you. So it's a way of socializing people into the life of the group and getting them to do what the group wants them to do. Yeah. It's interesting as I sit in interviews uh, for our staff, I can't, you know, there's certain things you just can't say, but they, they're, they're implied, they're noted, they, they become part of just the culture, don't they? They do. That's right. And because nobody comes out and says them, how do you learn them right. unless other people are talking about people <laughs> and what happens when they don't play by the rules. So, so really, um, it's, it's, just, it's just another level of information. And I guess what makes gossip less, of, less healthy is when it's untrue, when, it's, when we're trying to use it to manipulate or, and, or harm someone. That's right. Uh, the kind of gossip that we all disapprove of and the kind of gossip you don't want to be thought of as sharing is the stuff that really has no redeeming value whatsoever except helping you get ahead, um, serving your own selfish interests. Everybody frowns on that. And being a bad gossiper um, means that you're very transparent about this sort of thing and you're spreading mean-spirited information that doesn't do anybody any good except yourself and everybody sees right through it. And another thing that makes a person a bad gossiper is you're very indiscreet about who you share information with and when. Hmm. Um, if you're a blabbermouth that just repeats everything you hear, nobody's going to share information with you. So uh, when I refer to it as a social skill, what I'm referring to is the fact that it is important to be part of the gossip network, but it's also important to understand the difference between being a good and bad gossiper. Hmm. Good, good. In fact, let's get into that. I mean, I guess that's one of the benefits of if someone's a gossiper, a bad gossiper, a negative gossiper, they're going to be gossiped about anyway. So the, right. the system itself will control itself. 
That's exactly right. Uh, yeah, you can gossip about people being bad gossipers. And, um, <laughs> so so what, what, give, give us the rules. Go into the rules for us. Like what is, what is the good, what, you know, how to do this in the healthiest way? Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that gossip is a normal part of social life. And by being part of the gossip network at work or wherever you happen to be is not necessarily a failing on your part. When somebody shares gossip with you, it's a sign of trust. What they're saying is, look, I respect you. I think of you as a colleague and friend. I trust that you're not going to use this information in some way that's going to come back to harm me. And it's a sign of inclusion. By cutting yourself off and saying, I do not want to be part of the gossip network here, what you're really saying is, I don't want to be part of your group. I don't trust you. I don't want you to trust me. And mm. nobody wants to be in that situation in their day-to-day life when they're just trying to go about their business. And so the first thing to do is not be a holier-than-thou person that somehow thinks that because somebody else is gossiping, they're a bad person. You're gossiping, too. You just don't recognize it. Is there a benefit to, to being a part of, I guess, being willing to hear it but not spread it? Well, yes. I, I think that might be uh, a way to get on the other hand, there is a sort, certain sort of reciprocity thing that we feel. Okay, yeah. If somebody does a favor for me, I feel obligated to do a favor for them. So the person that just soaks up the gossip and never shares anything is going to be suspicious mm-hmm. because they're not playing by the rules. And uh, the skill comes then, if you are going to be part of the gossip network, uh, to be very discreet. Don't share something unless it absolutely has to be shared. Don't use gossip in a way that is only for your benefit. Be looking out for the well-being of the group as a whole. So there are guidelines we can follow. Hmm. Does um, I guess uh, could we push back on the gossip or the gossiper? So if someone's sharing something with me in confidence, can I push back on it and say that doesn't seem complete? That doesn't you know what I mean? And, and basically try to create. A cleaner version. Sure, absolutely, you can. Um, because the goal, really, the reason people are tuning into this the grapevine is to know what's going on and to make every attempt you can to make sure that the information that's being transmitted is accurate. There, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, sure, if you're if you're suspicious that what somebody's saying isn't true, call them on it. Ask why they're saying that. You know. Um, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like, too, that there's some things that even if it's true, even if it's gossip, that it's just still not worth, like, why are we sharing this? Well, that's right. Uh, another guideline would be to be sharing gossip that's relevant to the situation. Yeah. And so if you're at work uh, and somebody's engaging in some behavior that's counterproductive at work or hurting the their coworkers. That's something that would probably be legitimate to talk right. about. On the other hand, talking about what this person is doing in their personal life that is totally removed from the workplace is probably out of bounds. Interesting. Interesting stuff. We're speaking again with Dr. Frank McAndrew. Let's take a break, Frank, and uh, come back, continue this discussion about gossip. I mean, it, it's a social skill, folks, too. It's not – I mean, there's there's a moral side of it, right? And it sounds like you can still uh, be part of a social network and – not become part of the dark, seedy side of it. Just because you're hearing information doesn't mean you're having to become part of the dark side of the force, if uh, Terry was in the room. We'll take a break, folks, and uh, come back, continue this discussion about gossip. It's uh, 
Is it a character flaw or a social skill? Stick with us, folks. Interesting discussion. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Gossip, is it a social skill? I believe it is. Um, It's not just inherently a character flaw. People just immediately think, oh, you're gossiping? We could make up another word for it that maybe is better than gossip. Uh, Maybe gossip only includes kind of the dark, negative side of sharing information. But there is an inherently positive, beneficial side as well socially to know that you're in the group, to know that you're in the know, you're finding out about things earlier um, joining us today, uh, Dr. Frank McAndrew is with us. He is an evolutionary social psychologist from Knox College. He joins us today from Illinois to talk to us about uh, what he thinks about how gossiping is not a character flaw. Frank, again, thanks for being with us. Yep. Um, we, this, this is, is huge. Fine. I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's important to learn this. Is there a better word for the positive aspect of, uh, of gossiping than the word gossip? Because well, it's, it's just networking, really, right? It's... Well, that, it is. It is. And uh, it's keeping up. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because, let's face it, if, if you're totally clueless about what other people are doing, who's friends with whom, and you're just naive about the political maneuverings wherever you happen to be, you're never going to get ahead. I mean, y- if you're, you really have to know what other people are up to. Right. You you don't uh, need to know the dirt or, I mean, you could even know that and just don't spread that and don't try to get advancement based on someone else's pain or problem. Well, uh, unfortunately, I think our hunger is the greatest for information we can use. Okay. And that's the thing that really presses our buttons because um, if I have a rival or somebody that's higher in the food chain than I am and I find out some negative things about them – this is immediately interesting to me because it's something maybe I can exploit. I can mm-hmm. use this to get ahead. Whereas if I find out the person um, above me has just won other awards and come into all kinds of other powerful friends and allies, well, that doesn't help me at all. Right. You know? uh, I'm not going to be able to use this in, in any way. On the other hand, if I find out some very positive, good things about friends of mine or relatives of mine, this is going to be very interesting to me because it's potentially useful. Mm-hmm. So I think ultimately gossip does have a selfish core in that uh, people are kind of primed to do it because it's a useful thing that does help them get ahead. I'm just saying that's not the only thing that it right. does. Well, and I guess that's the key if we want to you know, teach our kids about healthy – uh, you know, get you know, being in the know is you, you're really it's going to test your your most basic base human tendencies to take advantage. Yeah, and uh, it, just look at the evening news any night of the week. It's all stories about people, right. and it's all stories about things that we can usually make moral judgments about, whether we're talking about political candidates or movie stars or any other kind of public figures. And we want to know the same things about them that we want to know about the people in our own lives. Yeah. Isn't that – it's just we, – we do. We have, this, we have this idea, right, that it's just inherently bad, and yet we've been surviving on it our entire existence. Yeah, and I would argue that you couldn't survive in the social world without it. Uh-huh. Well, and now it's weird too because we have social media so we can kind of more subtly – 
send our messages out, you know, even send them not as gossip but as news. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's like gossip with a megaphone. Um, you can transmit information to so many people in such a short time. There's nothing like it in human history before this. And so it is kind of running amok, I think. But, um, yeah, it's our caveman brains dealing with the 21st century. What, what are the rules we should use? Any other rules that you think of um, to make sure that we do keep our trustworthiness intact? One of the things you mentioned is that the mere fact I'm participating and being invited into the circle is because they trust me. But right. simultaneously, if I use it inappropriately, my trust is immediately broken. Yeah, uh, there you don't want to betray trust. So uh, when you and another person are sharing information, there's sort of a mutual understanding about how this information should or should not be used. And if you break that deal, that's going to sort of expel you from at least that part of the network. Also, you don't want to ever be the person that incorrect information can be traced back to. Mm. So... You know, if you are going to be sharing any information, make sure it's relevant and make sure it's accurate. Yeah, that's I mean, that's huge. It's I guess it does make you like a journalist, right? Exactly. If we're going to be on the record and it's going to be published or it's going to get out there, then make sure it's clean and clear. Yeah, And it will come back to you. You know, you, you may think that, OK, I'm just going to plant this information over here and let it take on a life of its own. But sooner or later, somebody's going to find out where it came from. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And that is the social game of life. It is, for better or worse. For better or worse. And that's what I love. You're you're so objective about it. Because, like, for me, it's still – I have this little weird moral thing with it. Like, yeah, but you don't want to spread – well, but no, but it's factually – it's happening. It's going to happen. Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a question of will you or won't you, can we stop it or – it's going to happen. Right. So let's just understand it as best we can and make it to be a force for good rather than bad as much as we can. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Dr. Frank McAndrew, thank you so much. Again, and, and uh, anybody, go, go look up his blog, Out of the Ooze, on psychologytoday.com. It's a great blog. You can also go visit his website, frankmcandrew.com. Frank, thank you so much. Uh, great insight, folks. And again, it's part of our social being you can still be moral as you share information, and you can still take a stand sometimes and say, you know what, I'm not going there. I don't want to talk about that. Um, and, and I think over time that could build uh, people's trust in you as well. So, But also don't negate the reality that people are talking. And in fact, maybe elevate the game by talking more effectively. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, We're going to throw it down to our good buddies. At BYU Sports Nation, we always like to find out what's going on and going to be coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Love I knew it if we waited to the right moment. That's why I was stalling because I wanted I wanted to get that high part where was it Jerem that just hit that? Nope. That was Jerem. I was the first one. Was that you, Spencer? 
that was me. Hey, um, this is my this is my moment. I, I've been dying to ask you because I know you're huge fans. Um, American Idol. They're down to their final two. Yeah, what Can season is it? Is it, it like season twenty nine? This is the this is the season of the grand finale. This is it. I don't know what season it is. Fifteen is it? Yeah, season oh, yeah. fifteen. So they're down to two. Are you guys going to miss American Idol? The last American Idol season I watched was with David Cook and David Archuleta. Was it really? Yeah. Man, you guys kind of just let it go, didn't you? When was that? Like, like I'm seven. I'm looking through all the winners. David Cook and David Archuleta. There's David Cook, I think, right there. Is <laughs> why, you, Jerem? Why? You're, com- you're competing. He's trying. He's still trying to compete for it. Uh, today. They're down to their final two. Okay. And I, I don't remember. Like, if you had to pick your favorite, was it David Archuleta, David Cook? Was that your favorite year? Your favorite um, winner? Well, in terms of, like, who's hit it the biggest, like, Kelly Clarkson and Carrie Underwood have been amazing. Huge. Yeah. That was Huge. season seven was Cook. It Cook, was season yeah, seven. Okay. Season seven. And, uh, I, yeah, Carrie Underwood. Is that her name? Carrie yes. Underwood. She's She's my favorite. But I also like Jordan Sparks. Come on. Uh, tell me I'm supposed to breathe with no air. Whoa. <laughs> right? I don't remember that. I know. I'm that's I'm the, one, that's I'm the one song I know from Jordan Sparks. What do you Sparks. mean you're out, Jerem? I'm and out. It, it's a duet with Chris Brown. Okay. Was that really good? Now, I know Jerem's favorite was Taylor Hicks. Taylor Hicks. You remember him? The dude with gray hair who was like 26. Yeah. Right? The 26-year-old gray-haired that's guy Julia that sang Riley the blues. Billy. And he... <laughs> He's he's saying with Catherine McPhee. Ah, uh, Catherine McPhee. Now there there is somebody that Jaron would like. Yeah. Well, I really liked uh Chris uh Strong. I thought he was great. I also enjoyed uh what was her name? Sarah uh Rutherford. What year what? She was great. Where where who are you talking about? I'm just about? making he's up making names because I don't know I'm any like, of these people who are you talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh. I haven't heard of any of these people. But you you've heard of Felicia Johansson? Wow. No, yeah, Felicia the was fantastic. Pipes on her. Man. <laughs> if you want to get Jerem really ramped up right now, yeah. Matt, ask him about the Star Wars. Ugh. We've Rogue been talking One about trailer. that. I know. That is Terry won't leave it alone. What is the deal with you guys, Jerem? I'm not like freaking out, but it was really exciting. Yeah. Well, hold on, hold on. I'm going to go look it up. You should also ask him about Felicity Jones. Why? New new crush for me. Really? Yeah. Why? What's Star what's... of Star Wars Rogue One? Yeah. Well, it's Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Sorry, Rogue One. Not to be a Star confused Wars with story. Like Episode Eight. My bad. You guys, there's something I just don't get. I guess it's what I feel for Carrie Underwood. You feel for Felicity. No. I'm with you, man. No, Carrie no, Underwood is an amazing American no, I, idol. Totally. It's like I went past her on the escalator at the mall. Like, oh, wow. Wow. That's it. Really? Yeah. No, that's really? How you feel about Carrie Underwood? No, that's how Matt Matt feels stronger about Carrie Underwood yeah. than I feel about Felicity Jones right now. That's but didn't you love Felicity's? <laughs> did you? <laughs> he, he brought up. Did you see when Felicity saw her first trailer? No, that was Daisy Ridley. Oh, was that Daisy? Oh, I thought that's who we were talking about. No. Okay. No, I no, I have a stronger um, crush on Daisy Ridley than yeah. I do Felicity. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. I'm watching. The, I'm watching the trailer, um, but there's no sound to it. But I'm not being moved. It's not moving me. Well, Rogue One, not moving me. You need to listen to it. Okay. 
There's, yeah, if you crank up the the music and the volume and a lot of things are boring. If really, let the looking. ethos set in. Yeah, that. yeah, it's intense. The appeal to emotion. Yeah, like you can't just look at Mount Rushmore without listening to it. What? What? What do you listen to exactly? Huh? The rocks. Oh my goodness. The rocks <laughs> saying something to me. Do the rocks speak? <laughs> I am George Washington. <laughs> Hear me roar. I just heard George. Did you guys hear George? But we need what? to <laughs> steal the Declaration of Independence. Now you're international treasure. <laughs> Nicholas Cage. <laughs> Have you seen the celebrity Jeopardy with Nicholas Cage portrayed? No. I don't know where my podium is. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded like him. That was really good. I knew if I brought this up, we'd go I'm somewhere. I'm Ghost Rider. <laughs> One of the worst films of all time. <laughs> you guys, um, this is good. This is good radio. I don't care what Don says. Impersonations. Oh this yeah. is really good radio. Then there's, the, oh, there's the Keanu Reeves. We've gone too far. We know too much. <laughs> Keanu Reeves. That is great acting. I know right Kung there. Fu. That is really good acting. Red pill or blue pill? <laughs> I am Johnny Utah. <laughs> you guys are weird. Yes. But I'm glad we took it away from Star Wars for a minute because that could go on forever. We've discussed American Idol, Star Wars, Keanu Reeves. <laughs> a robot. Jerem has R2 whipped D2. out like 17 different sound effects thus far. This We need to end this right now, man. It's going to get out of control. Don't you think, wouldn't you love to have been mm-hmm. just a camera mm-hmm. watching Jerem play with Star Wars figures as a little kid? I don't what? think I had Star I had Star Wars underwear. Oh, please. We I don't, had Star let's Wars not go there. when I was a kid. That's Star a ton Wars. of them. Sheets. Yeah, I, I had Star that. Wars sheets. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, Return of the Jedi came out the year I was born. Jeez, you're young. I know. Ah, uh, my young Padawan. <laughs> <laughs> you guys. Hey, um, you still doing your show? Are you guys going to do that today still? We are doing yeah, that. Yeah. Just like we were comparing BYU's most recent basketball season to a Hollywood movie last year, mm-hmm. we have flipped the page entirely today. Mm. It's about expectations for next year. Okay. You're we, all... have a, we have a new choo-choo train involved on the show, but yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah brand new today. Yeah. The tourney train transforms into something else. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because we have the off-season. Yeah. So this is it the off-season train? Is well, it the train to we'll, nowhere? We'll, we'll it... tell you. Just, just, just watch, listen to the we'll show. Let you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Also, two members, newcomers of next year's team will join us. Elijah Bryant uh, will join us as well as Yoli Childs. Yeah. Yoli Childs is a top 50 uh, recruit, according to ESPN nationally. He's one of the top 50 high school basketball players. Holy yeah. cow. He's coming to BYU. Uh, he went to Bingham, who beat my high school, Copper Hills, for the 5A state title, but we yeah. can still be friends. Those two <laughs> will join us on the show. So it's it's a big show. Plus, baseball game day against San Diego tonight, 8 Eastern on BYU Radio. Th- that, that's a big baseball game for the Cougars. Yeah, The and series that, is huge. And Yoli's that also means pitcher. you're working late, right? We'll take the mound. I am working late, yes. Hmm. Yeah, You guys... I don't know. Big day. Hey. Big huge day. day. Mike Weir. Yeah. Is that the Masters? The he Masters won the 2003 Masters off. BYU alum. Oh, my heavens. He's underway. He, he parred the first hole. So he's on Man, the he's on the way. Tied for 18th right now. It's early, but he's tied for 18th. Well, see, this is the news we don't get otherwise. You can't just look this stuff up on the internet. Wait. Hold on. Actually, you can. <laughs> the interviews, you cannot. Not the, the interviews. FSW, in theory, you could. Mm-hmm. We hey, gather it all together and then give it to you. One more quick. I just want one quick take. Okay, you're just your gut reaction. Uh, Jar Jar Binks. 
Please live. <sighs> yeah, fail. Okay, fail. fail. Just, I'm going to write that down. Fail. I don't know where my podium is. <laughs> what about Jar Jar Cage? <laughs> Ooh. We're going to steal the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> Misa Ghost Rider. <laughs> I knew you'd get the voice out there. Why can't Nicolas Cage and Keanu Reeves do a movie together? Oh, they will. <laughs> they will. It'll be University, about a rest home by University. now. Universe would implode. Okay, guys, have a great show. I know you got work to do. You got waxing to get going on. Okay. Hey, by the way, I tried to see that that injury to your neck, Spencer, yesterday on the air, and I couldn't see it. Makeup was uh, really well applied. Incredible neck injury and abrasion somehow at home. Good to have you guys. Thanks for being here. You got it, brother. Well, shit. Stay sweet. We're going away with this great music. <sighs> Good stuff. They got a great show. You're going to want to listen to that at the top of the hour. You don't even have to move. You can just keep driving down the freeway. Just keep driving down the freeway, and you will then – Sports Nation will start in about five minutes. Hey, uh, as you know, we always like to um, you know, help anyone we can because if we can help the criminal element be better, just people or even criminals. Bad boys, bad boys. What you going to do? What you going to do when they come? A uh, Pittsburgh police say a man upset that his pizza delivery was late, went to a restaurant, broke things, threw objects at the employees. 59-year-old Neil Orr had been charged with aggravated assault, terroristic threats, and other charges in Wednesday night's melee at Italian Village Pizza. Pizza! Police say Orr was told his pizza would be delivered in 30 to 45 minutes, and he called to complain. And when he, he still didn't have his pizza after an hour. Come on! Police say Orr then went to the shop. I'm going to go get my pizza. And uh, started, started a fight, basically. Threw objects at employees, broke some glass. He was hit in the head by something and started bleeding. Orr faces a preliminary hearing March 29th and doesn't have an attorney or a listed phone number. You know why, Mr. Orr? Because they're afraid. <laughs> they're afraid of you. So, you know, a little advice. If you order a pizza and it doesn't show up, just know it'll be free. Do they still have that promise? I don't think so. What a ripoff. No wonder people are mad. Just just relax, man. Just do what I do. I'm alone. No one's home to take care of me. My kids aren't around. My wife's not there. So when my pizza doesn't show up, I throw in a lean cuisine. And I just eat low-fat, low-carb. Opinions expressed reflect the opinions of the show host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the staff management of BYU Radio. Absolutely. (laughs) I don't like that they do that now. Don's got a button in his office and it's like, play that, play that. Now they're playing the disclaimer all the time. Yeah, I feel like it's just things that Don doesn't agree with. Because that was just about lean meals. That was just lean cuisine. Yeah. That segment brought to you by Lean Cuisine. Actually, not not brought to you by Lean Cuisine. Hey, uh, we always like to do a hero story also at the end of the show. Who better to be heroes than a bunch of football players? How about Iowa State football players? Listen to this. They return from spring break as heroes. The Cyclones, uh, they were in a car um, and they, they, they were in uh, Laguna Madre Bay off the east coast of Texas when they saw a car that was sinking in the laguna in the bay. And um, they sprang into action. 
Cyclones linebacker Jack Spreen and Anthony Lazard defensive back Josh Jalas and defensive end Spencer Benton went to South Padre Island for spring break with uh, former Iowa State linebacker Joe Duran and former Cyclones defensive back Matt Swoyer. The six young men worked together on March 16th to pull a 22-year-old woman out of her vehicle before it submerged into the bay. That car completely sank in less than a minute, and if it were not for them jumping into the water and pulling the driver out, she would most certainly have drowned. South Padre Island police officer Michael Schlitz uh, told the Des Moines Register. They saved her life. Lazard uh, could hear Castro's calls for help as the front of her car was underwater. The vehicle's taillights were still visible, but the car was filling up with water. I was getting worried that we were going to watch this girl drown to death because no matter how hard uh, we were hitting the window, it wouldn't crack. Anyway, they kept hitting the window, eventually freed the woman, and now, uh, you know, they're being hailed as heroes. Castro, the driver of the car, had a blood alcohol level twice the legal limit and was charged with driving while intoxicated. I have no words to express how appreciative I am of them, Castro told the register. Even when I messaged them, I still felt that the words or what I was saying to them uh, wasn't, wasn't enough to show what I was really feeling. So, to those great heroes, football players from Iowa State, well done, my friends. You are the heroes of the Matt Townsend Show Folks, everyone can be a hero. You don't have to be a football player to do it. You don't have to jump into the water. Sometimes it's just taking care of your family, loving the people around you, giving people a break, for heaven's sakes, counting to 10 before you freak out, just being an honest, decent, good person. That's what we all need on this earth. We'll be back again tomorrow. More tools, more ideas to help you find the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, take care of each other. We'll be back again.